Shining the spotlight on the future of hockey. Hey, it's Ty Smith of the Spokane Chiefs. It's Adam Bocas. Hey, it's Joe Valeno from the Drummondville Voltageurs. Hey, it's Quinn Hughes from the University of Michigan. Hi, I'm Dominic Fox. I'm Jacob Bernard Docker of the Oak Hills Oilers. It's Joe O'Brien. Hi, it's Barrett Hayden of the Sioux Greyhounds. Brady Kachuk from the Boston University Terriers. Major Junior. In the 100th year of the Memorial Cup, the Ankeny Panthers T-Tall have won it for the first time. NCAA. Everybody in that Bulldog section's on their feet. The bench is ready to party as the UMD Bulldogs are back-to-back national champions. The World Juniors. Time winding down, and Finland has won the World Junior Championship in Vancouver in spectacular style. The NHL Draft. The Buffalo Sabres are proud to select Trollunda defenseman Rasmus Dahlin. And more. Oh, yes! Oh, my goodness. We're not going home yet, baby! This is the Pipeline Show. Here we go. Well, good weekend and welcome to the Pipeline Show. My name is Gee Flaming. It's a uh, somewhat special edition of the uh, the Pipeline Show this week, as this week's episode is the final episode. It's the season finale of season 14. Uh, next week, I'm taking a one-week vacation I'll be back the week after to kick off season 15 here of the Pipeline Show. But today marks uh, the end of what was uh, the 14th year uh, for the Pipeline Show, going all the way back to 2006. And it's going to be a very long show, as a matter of fact. Uh, just going by the uh, the four interviews, the guests that you're going to hear on the show today, and I'll tell you who that is uh, in a moment, all over two hours, just the interviews themselves. So the longer I talk the longer the episode is going to be. So I'm going to try to my best to really condense both the intro segment and uh, what I say after the interviews uh, leading into uh, the, the separation between uh, the four segments. Um, so I'm going to make this really quick. Question of the day, nobody actually answered that I put up on Twitter yesterday, so we can only, we can breeze right through that. I, I said it's the season finale. I asked uh, what your favorite season finale on TV was. Not series finale, but season finale. Uh, but nobody uh, sent in any uh, any uh, comments, so we won't worry about that. You can always follow me on Twitter, at TPS underscore Gee. As I'm speaking with you right now, it's a Saturday. Uh, this might not actually get uh, posted until Sunday, so uh, we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, I'll be honest, right now I gotta, I'm in the middle of a family reunion, so it happens to be right across the street from my house, so I'm able to dart back and forth and do a little bit of the show and go back uh, and spend family time, come back, do a little bit of the show, um, so it's uh, it's going to take a little bit for me to get the final product all together. But the Holinka Gretzky Cup starts on Monday. The Summer Showcase in Plymouth, Michigan with the World Juniors from uh, Canada, the U.S., Sweden, and Finland is uh, wrapping up uh, as I speak. Uh, there's only one game left to go with the U.S. and Canada. Uh, throughout the week, though, uh, Canada beat the United States 4-1. Canada lost to Finland by a score of 8-3. They beat Sweden. 5-2, to two. they're playing the Americans here to uh, wrap up the tournament as well. Other scores, the U.S. throttled Sweden, 6 nothing. Uh, Finland beat the United States 6-5 to five along the way as well. Uh, and uh, earlier today, Sweden doubled up Finland by a score of 6-3. to three. I'll be honest, have not been able to pay almost any attention to that um, this week uh, for other reasons, uh, family vacation uh, planning and uh, all of that stuff. Summer caught up to me this week in a big way, but uh, I'll take next week off come back and we'll be able to recap the Holinka Gretzky Cup and everything that happened uh, over in the Czech Republic and Slovakia. That's going to do it for my news and notes. So here's what's coming down the pipe today. As I mentioned, four guests. Each guest segment 
It's going to be very long. Uh, here's what you're going to have. Uh, we've been doing Ask the Kamish all this month, or at least in July, leading up to the end of Season 14. have three of those today for you. We're going to start with Josh Fenton. He is the commissioner of the NCHC Conference in the NCAA. From that, we'll transition to uh, the USHL and uh, Tom Garrity, the commissioner of the U.S. League. He'll tell us about that loop, and uh, then we'll go with uh, Mark Frankenfeld, a, a really long segment with him, over 40 minutes, learning all about the NA, the North American Hockey League. Some people call it the NAL. He says they uh, he refers to it as the NA, though, so we'll go with that. Uh, Mark Frankenfeld, he's the commissioner and the president of the NA. And we will wrap things up. We'll wrap up Season 14. Ross McLean, independent scout, longtime scout with Hockey Canada, and has done some in- independent work prior to his tenure with Hockey Canada and was a guest on the show for a long time in our early days. Uh, he is back to uh, tee up the Holinka Gretzky Cup. Really uh, in-depth, great rundown of some of the names you need to know about as that tournament begins on Monday. So lots to get to. Less of me, more of the guests. And we start with Josh Fenton. Commissioner of the NCHC, that's next, here on the Pipeline Show. Hi, this is Scott Stanley, coach of the University of Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs, and this is the Pipeline Show. NCAA Hockey offers all that and its players graduate at a 90% rate. Jonathan Taves. Backhand scores! Wow, what a goal! Joe Pavelski. And Johnny Gaudreau. We're stars on campus before the NHL stage. Whether you are a fan or a player, nothing compares to college hockey. Visit collegehockeyinc.com and follow at College Hockey. Champions of the college hockey world! You're listening to the Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. Yo, ding dong, man, ding dong, ding dong, yo. Back on the Pipeline Show, and my first guest this week is uh, another member of the Ask the Commission segments that we've been doing all this month, asking commissioners from different leagues to come on the show and talk about their respective league. This time, it's uh, south of the border with the NCAA, and that means it's an NCAA campus report segment brought to you by. At College Hockey Inc., stay up to date on everything happening around the world of uh, NCAA hockey. And if you're a player or you have a player in your family that is looking to uh, feel out all their options and uh, is exploring the uh, College Hockey option, no, well, and College Hockey Inc. is a great resource uh, for you. We'll answer a lot of the questions you might have on uh, maintaining your eligibility so that you can play College Hockey. My guest today in the Ask the Commission segment is the commissioner of the NCHC Conference, and, uh, boy, this is a conference that is uh, dominating NCAA hockey here as of late. Josh Fenton is my guest. Welcome to the program, Josh. How are things? Things are great, Guy. Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to get a chance to speak with you in the summer. I know it's we, we joke that there's not much of an off-season anymore. Are you having lots of meetings or lots of golf or lots of meetings while you golf? Well, I tell you, I have a uh, 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old, all boys. Um, and unless I'm on the golf course with them, I'm not on the golf course. So. Yeah. Um, with the family time, uh, we're we're busy doing this type of stuff here in the summer. But uh, you know, summer's been good, and yes, we're getting ready for 
another season that's coming up here very fairly shortly. What is on the agenda in the off season? What sort of things do you have to deal with? Well, you know, it, it really goes back to kind of the springtime. So we, we wrap up the college hockey season, obviously, at the Frozen Four. And um, we've been fortunate to have a team standing right there at the end the last four years. And so that's been exciting for the conference. But then we go into a mode uh, really through the month of April and preparing for our annual meetings. So we have annual meetings with our constituents from our membership. So whether it be head coaches, athletic directors, faculty, athletic representatives, and then for our conference, our board of directors are representatives presented by our presidents and chancellors, and so I have a board meeting uh, in the middle of May. So it's a lot of preparation uh, for those meetings, obviously hosting those meetings, and those meetings are really kind of a look back on the year that was and a, and a little bit of a glimpse forward to the future. And so once we get through those, which kind of takes us towards the end of May, uh, we start to somewhat unofficially close the books on, on the previous year, although our fiscal year runs through the end of August. Uh, and then we start to transition and, and put some plans in place uh, for the upcoming season and, and even beyond. And a lot of the things that, that we're working on and focused on really come from the discussions in our annual meetings and taking direction and, and leadership uh, direction from our membership uh, from those meetings. And so uh, whether it be updating policy and procedure, new policy, uh, touching base with our television partners, uh, we're going through a, a transition with our uh, digital video network technology provider. So it's a lot of things that you frankly cannot do during the season because you just don't have the time to do them right. and you wouldn't want to do them in the season. Um, but they need to get done on an annual basis. And so therefore, I guess the summertime is the time to do it. All right, well, we'll touch on some of those subjects moving forward, but I guess maybe the way we should start is by looking back at the season that was, and it was a really another strong year for your conference, and uh, mention that uh, now the the conference has uh, four NCAA national uh, uh, champions in a row, consecutive in a row, and, and with the Duluth Bulldogs winning back-to-back, which uh, is a rarity, could go for the uh, super-rare three-peat. It's like since the 50s, since the team won three in a row? Yeah, the University of Michigan won three in a row. Actually, uh, the first 10 national championships were held at the Broadmoor Arena in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is actually where our office is and, frankly, where I'm sitting talking to you probably only about maybe a, a driver away to the old arena, Broadmoor Arena. And so Michigan won three in a row back in the 50s at Broadmoor Arena. So. I've told Scott Sandlin, uh, you know, no pressure. It hasn't been done for, you know, 60-some years at this point. <laughs> well, and they've got a team that could actually legitimately get back and do it all again uh, this year. So we'll we'll watch for that for sure. But when you look back at this past season, what were some of the highlights outside of the, the national title for uh, for Duluth? What were some of the highlights for the NCHC along the way? Well, obviously, the overall competitive success, Duluth capping off at the end was was the cherry on top. But, uh, you know, we had two teams with Duluth and Denver make the Frozen Four. Um, and, and Denver, unfortunately, lost a very good UMass team in that semifinal game. But um, by having two teams in the Frozen Four um, and, uh, and, and, and four teams in the tournament, um, you know, it just kind of continued to speak to the competitive success that we've had. Uh, in the conference, you know, our non-conference record, which is obviously the uh, record of our teams against uh, teams in other conferences, continued to be at, at a high mark. We we won a 659 winning percentage in non-conference play, um, and I think we were the, certainly the only conference over 600, and I think there was only one or two more over 500. And so, you know, that non-conference success has allowed us to maximize the number of teams 
um, that are in the uh, NCAA tournament each and every year. Um, and, and in fact, our, our non-conference record over the past six years, which obviously goes back to the start of our conference, is 633. So um, that mark right there is is a we're we're pretty proud of that mark. Um, you know, we had six six skaters earn All American honors, um, which continues to be about the number that we have each and every year. I think we had three in the first team and three on the second team. Um, and so from a competitive standpoint and on ice accolades, um, you know, we did, we did great things. We had another, um, great NCHC frozen face off in downtown St. Paul at XL energy center. We're the home of the Minnesota wild. Uh, it's, it was our second year at that venue. We were previously four years at target center across the river in downtown Minneapolis, uh, made the move over to Excel 2018 event and 2019 continued to just kind of uh, move the needle forward from the uh, success we had in that first year in 2018. And so we had probably one of the best college hockey games that I've seen in the six years of our conference in the championship game when Minnesota Duluth and St. Cloud State battled it out to a, uh, a two overtime um, affair uh, in front of a great crowd, obviously full of Maroon and gold and, and red, white, and black uh, representing St. Cloud State and, and Minnesota Duluth right there in the state of Minnesota. So we had another great, great tournament there. Um, I, I briefly mentioned our digital network and some transition that we're going through with technology on our digital network, but our digital network, nchc.tv, continue to be a strong point and, and a success point for our conference this past year. It's a really the only um, what I would call fully integrated digital network in all of college hockey and one of the few of them in college athletics um, in the NCAA world uh, where we have approximately 150 live games that stream through the network. Plus, we complement those live games with, with video on demand content. There's there's news, news uh, aggregator uh, features where you can read news articles from school websites or our website, social integration. Um, and it's just a great platform to get any and all information and, and get great content from the conference and our member institutions. So NCAC TV continued to be a, a pretty big thing for us, you know, and, and then also our national television partnership, or I should say our television partnerships in general, but nationally with CBS Sports Network, we had 14 games uh, broadcasted nationally to their audience of 60 million households across the U.S. Um, on CBS Sports Network, which is a big brand building thing and helping to tell our story here in the NCAC on a pretty big linear platform. And then we have a great partnership with the regional sports network, Fox Sports North, out of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, obviously an important market for us. And those feature games from St. Cloud State or Minnesota Duluth. So a lot of great things from the, from the past year, but uh, we're always looking to certainly make improvements for the future. Well, I tell you, being north of the border, uh, getting to watch games can be a challenge uh, on TV because there's not a lot of college hockey uh, north of the border, although TSN has started to show some. Sometimes they're delayed games or, or whatever. But uh, the NCHC uh, TV package is fantastic. Uh, I use it a lot. And uh, you, you said there's there's maybe some changes coming. Is there stuff that you can talk about yet? What could be different? Yeah. So the the technology partner that that we were with previously, New Line, which trans uh, transitioned to what was called New Line College, was sold to another company called Sidearm. Sidearm's owned by Learfield, and Learfield's certainly a big player in the collegiate athletic space uh, here in the U.S. And so. Um, 
we're just making a transition with the platform over uh, from New Line College to Sidearm. We actually had them in our office yesterday, kind of going through the transition phase, and it, it'll it'll have a very similar look and feel. All the features that fans are used to will be there. But then we talked about some just minor general enhancements that we can make. You know, when you when you build something, you know, whether it be a house or in this case, I guess a digital network, there's always things that you're like. I wish I would have done this differently or wish I would have done this better. And so I think those were kind of some of the small detail things that we've talked about with our new partner, Sidearm, that hopefully fans will be able to enjoy and see as the uh, release of the new platform comes at some point here in September. One of the things you mentioned uh, at the start there was about the frozen face-off and how successful that move uh, to the XL Center in in, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota has been. I always wondered why it was important, and I know it's been successful, so I'm, it's not a criticism at all, but why not have it in uh, in a building that actually is part of the NCAC? I know it's within the footprint of your conference, but you don't actually have a team that plays in, in St. Paul or Minneapolis, for that matter. Uh, why is it uh, good to have like a neutral site rather than, say, rotate it every year at, at a different uh, at a different campus uh, from one of the teams that are in the conference? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, historically, if you went back and look at college hockey conferences, the neutral site model was the model. You know, I don't know that at one point in time there was any conference, you know, back when the CCHA was around and the WCHA in a different format and obviously hockey, ECAC, you know, they were all in neutral site uh, models for that championship weekend, you know, t- traditionally semifinals in a championship game. And so when when realignment happened in 2011 and we were forming our conference, you know, we felt like it was important for us to continue that that mode and that model because our members had great experiences in the CCHA and the WCHA in either Jolis Arena or XL Energy Center. And so um, that was what was established at the beginning when when the conference formed, and it's continued to be a priority for us. Uh, yet today, uh, I think a couple things. We, we believe that the student athlete experience, um, in an NHL venue, NHL type of venue, and certainly an NHL venue with XL Energy Center provides them an excellent, excellent experience. Um, secondly, uh, for the fans in the fan experience, we know that the fans can circle the date on their calendar. We know that the fans know where they, they, they need to get to or, or where they want to go if they want to come be a part of the frozen face-off um, because it's going to be in St. Paul, Minnesota each and every year. And so uh, that venue plus complementing the factors surrounding the city of St. Paul and us producing ancillary events like Fan Fest. Uh, we have our award celebration on Thursday night leading into the weekend. We have a fan skate where you can skate on the ice of XL Energy Center, obviously home of the Minnesota Wild. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, ancillary things surrounding the weekend that I think would be a little bit difficult to do uh, in a campus site format um, that we think adds greatly to the fans' experience. And so uh, we've continued to believe that uh, the neutral site model is, is best for our conference. Um, you know, it's obviously a discussion that we have each and every year just to kind of check in on it. Um, but for the first six years, and in particular since we made the move over to XL Energy Center, we feel very strongly that we have one of the best college hockey tournament championship weekend experiences across the country. And I think our players would say that, and I think our fans who attend the event would say that. And, you know, that's what our focus has been on the student-athlete and fan experience. And we think the neutral site model gives the best of, of, of that. 
if it's in Minnesota every year, the state of Minnesota, is there at all an unfair advantage for the Bulldogs or St. Cloud State uh, in terms of fan base? We know North Dakota fans are going to travel. You could have it. You could play these games on the moon, and there would be green and black jerseys in the in the stands. Uh, but is there a, a bit of a disadvantage for some of the teams that have to travel further? I don't think so. Um, I, I think they would tell you that um, they would much prefer to play in a venue with great atmosphere that is full of fans, even if those fans may be wearing a different team's color. Um, I think that just adds to the overall experience. And so, um, you know, whether you're talking to Denver, Colorado College, Western Michigan, Miami, maybe to some extent Omaha, although they're, you know, in a drivable distance to the location, I don't know that any of them would say, um, it's unfair when we play St. Cloud State or Duluth or North Dakota in the frozen face-off. I think they see that as a great opportunity and going to be a great experience um, because they know that there's going to be a, a loud, raucous crowd there. Josh, there's six conferences. Uh, your conference has uh, eight teams. Uh, each conference has its its own feel to it, and, and I'm sure there are some challenges that are unique to each conference. What might some of those be for the NCHC? What are what are the hurdles you have to clear every year? Well, I mean, I think I think it's different in any every, any given year. Um, you know, last year we seemed to have challenges uh, surrounding geography and, and getting teams and officials to and from where they needed to go. But a lot of that was based upon weather. And so, you know, some some may say that the spread out nature of our conference, which spans over three time zones. Um, can be a problem, and, and yes, it, it can be an issue when we have, uh, you know, weather situations that come in and, and cause issues in, in travel. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, that that's something that's you know can can be based upon circumstances that are that are occurring or not occurring. Um, but you know, we we have we have challenges um, in making sure that our tournament experience and our championship weekend experiences. Are, are the best they can be. I mean, we're, we're not going to stop until we can sell every single ticket within Excel Energy Center. And we certainly haven't gotten to that point yet. Um, and so, um, you know, we're focused on how we can do better with our tournament experience. Uh, we're focused on how we can do better with our digital and our social experience, although we think we do it fairly well. And, and a lot of credit goes to our director of communications, Michael Wiseman, and what he does in that, those areas. Um, but but there are always challenges there. You know, financially, um, running a college hockey conference, um, from a financial standpoint, we're heavily reliant on our on our revenue that comes from our postseason tournament. I think we've done a nice job of um, coming up with new revenue streams or, or, or using d- different revenue streams to be less reliant upon supporting the conference financially just through the success of the tournament but the financial model hinges certainly a lot on the tournament and so you know there are challenges um on on any given year and and you know those challenges seem to change when you get into uh the season and it's based upon obviously the set of circumstances that are in front of you one of the questions that came in uh submitted by an, uh, one of the uh listeners in the audience uh spoke about uh, uh financial uh, sustainability Dependent on the uh, the attendance. In fact, the, the question is: Could the NCHC sustain the quality of its product with attendance similar to a different conference? I, and I, I I wasn't aware that uh, it was that big of a, a ticket driven or a gate driven um, business that the that college hockey was in. I I didn't know that it really mattered how many fans were coming out. It, I is that uh, that is the case that it is a lot more dependent on uh, on on the gate. 
Yeah, I certainly don't want to speak for my colleagues in other conferences, but I think they would tell you somewhat generally the same thing, is that historically college hockey conferences and the financial structure of them have relied um, fairly significantly upon um, the postseason tournament. Now, when we look at the postseason tournament, for us, that spans over two weekends. We have a quarterfinal round on the campus sites, best of three series. The winners of those series move on to St. Paul to the frozen faceoff. And so, you know, the, our overall tournament look and, and the financial picture of that is over two weekends. It's not just what's happening in St. Paul. It's also what's happening in that previous weekend. My point is that I think we've done a great job of showcasing to the fans that maybe we're a little unsure about whether um, financially it could sustain itself over time with kind of some of the ebbs and flows that may come with the tournament, that we've been able to do that. We, we've positioned ourselves now, uh, we've got a little over a month, I guess, to go in the fiscal year, but we've positioned ourselves for a six straight uh, surplus position financially, um, which is a really, really positive thing for the conference and something that our membership is and our office staff is very proud of. Um, and, and, and a lot of that is reliant upon the tournament, but then we've been able to go out and, and as I mentioned before, generate new revenue streams that have made our overall model less reliant on the tournament, which is, which is a very positive thing. So whether it be sponsorship or digital network, um, some of our other media agreements that we have, we, there's some licensing things. We have a new online store, shopnchc.com, that was launched last year. That's helped out a little bit in that regard. And, and that's really kind of my job or our job in the office is to say, okay, we know what we have from a tournament standpoint. We can always do more um, at the frozen face-off weekend, and that's what our focus is going to be. But when you look at the previous weekend, Guy, there's not much that, that we in the office can do because it's based upon who plays who from the conference standings. And as I sit here today in, in almost August 1st, I can't tell you who's going to finish 1 through 4 and 5 through 8. Um, but those standings will dictate you know, where those matchups will be in that quarterfinal round. And, and obviously the revenue can can ebb and flow a little bit based upon what venue you're in and who's hosting and who's not. And so I think we've done a good job of of making the, the model less reliant on, on the tournament by um, engaging in some new revenue streams. Josh Fenton is the commissioner of the NCHC conference and the NCAA is my guest here on the Pipeline Show. Our Ask the Commissioner segment throughout July continues. Uh, we mentioned eight teams in the conference. Is that a comfortable number for you? It's It's not like junior hockey where a franchise can relocate from one year to another or a new team can just come in it's a little different with college hockey those those things take a, a little bit more time but is eight teams comfortable for you or would you like to see that grow to nine or ten or even more well i think it's a, a number that we've been very comfortable with um and i think the success and, and maybe the numbers over the past six years have, have proven that the numbers can work I and mean, it allows us to play uh, a pretty nice not almost not perfectly balanced 24 game schedule which gives our institutions opportunities for 10 non-conference games with the 34 game maximum in the NCA um and so there are a lot of advantages to um having the number that that we have um it's it's a small a tight knit group uh, all eight institutions are committed to hockey at the absolute highest level 
Uh, I know they're all having discussions today or they have discussions regularly about how they can improve their hockey programs to compete for national championships on, on any given year. And so we have a, we have a lot of uh, similar thinkers, and, and in the past the term like-mindedness has been used. Um, but I think that that is is proven very true in our conference, and so we've been focused on these past six years in strengthening the the eight member uh, configuration that we have. Um, do we have discussions about you know changes that may come in the future or changes in other areas that may have impact on us in the future? Absolutely, it's our job to do that. It's my job to do that, and so um, you know I, I'm certainly paying attention and having conversations with. Those I need to have conversations with just to understand um, how things have changed or may continue to change across college hockey that that may have an impact uh, on the NCHC in the future. I can tell you right now we we don't really have any um, d- direct or proactive conversations about um, expansion or you know some other number, um, but but. I myself as the commissioner and, and, and the person in charge of the conference and what the memberships entrusted me to do is to pay attention to, to what's going on out there. And if there's something that we need to discuss, uh, you can bet that we'll certainly discuss it. But uh, recently, um, over the past, call it two to three years, we've had you know very little discussion about um, expansion, and it's been about the focus of the existing eight members. All right, let's uh, look at the Frozen Four. The last uh, number of years and the next few years, they're all being held now in NHL markets, not necessarily college hockey markets, but some of those have been really successful. Going down to Tampa, for instance, is, has been really uh, a successful venue for the Frozen Four. Now, I know you had put a bit in uh, with through the conference to, to, for Kansas City, uh, and I read some articles recently. You're looking at Madison Square Garden in New York or, or out in L.A., uh, where's that situation at right now for future bids? So we're still in the process of figuring out uh, what opportunities we may have to play as a host. Uh, we're having conversations uh, with a variety of markets, um, not with nothing solidified at this point. You know, the bid portal opens and the bid process, I should say, opens for the NCA on a, on a variety of their championships uh, on August 1st. And so it'll open here in a couple days, um, and then it stays open until the beginning, I believe, of February. So it, it's going to be open for a few months here. And so we, over the next month to two months, will get ourselves uh, organized with, with uh, who will align ourselves from a bid standpoint. Uh, it, it may be one. It may be more than one. Um, but that's something that I'm still trying to figure out. We, we've got great relationships across different markets and, and different venues um, in, in, in the United States. And I think um, what we're looking at and, and the opportunities that, that we see in front of us just in general with the Frozen Four is, is an ability to take the event to maybe a market it hasn't been to, a non-traditional market, but a market that commands quite a bit from uh, a media attention standpoint, um, knowing that it would give the participating teams, student-athletes, and the fans that attend attend incredible experiences. Uh, We've had some great Frozen Fours uh, in in great markets, and and I know we're going to have another great one next year in Detroit, um, obviously in the new building there. 
Um, but you know, we're looking at some some non-traditional markets, and it's been widely publicized before. And those are the conversations that we're currently having. Just nothing yet has um, kind of been finalized, and so I'm, I'm not at will to say exactly where we are with specific discussions. Sure, uh, Kansas City was interesting, though. It's not a Division One uh, hockey market, and nor an NHL market. It has an NHL quality building. Um, but uh, I wondered wh- why that was such an interesting fit for you, uh, being that it's not an NHL market or a Division One college hockey market. Well, a couple of things. Uh, it was our first time ever being a part of uh, a bid. You know, it was back when our conference really just had gotten going. And so I think that was like year two, maybe year three, actually probably year two of the conference when that opportunity was, was presented to us. And it came through. Um, somebody I'd worked with on the television side that um, worked with somebody very close in the Kansas City uh, Sports Commission type of organization there, and uh, we started talking, and and I said, yeah, let's 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 see what happens. Um, I, I do think that the NCA and the Men's Ice Hockey Championships Committee have a preference um, to put the put the event into NHL venues, uh, NHL markets. Um, I think they feel as though that there's a lot of built-in advantages, which I would agree with them on that. Um, but who knows? Maybe they would stray from that, and maybe they would consider a market like Kansas City or maybe a market like Milwaukee. It's obviously been there before, and and uh, you know there are there are other ones across this country that that they certainly could look at. But I think their preference would be to go into an NHL market, an NHL uh, venue. Um, there, there's there's the schedule of the event itself has a little bit um, kind of dictates a little bit who may bid and who may not bid. So, for instance, Guy, for most of the time, and don't ask me how to tell you how much of the time because I'm not sure, but most of the time, uh, the event falls in the last week of the NHL regular season. Mm-hmm. However, there are a few occasions when the event will fall in the first week of the NHL playoffs of the first round. And so, uh, for instance, this past year, Buffalo, unfortunately for Buffalo, didn't make the playoffs, but Frozen Four was the first week of, of the first round, or first part of the first round of the NHL playoffs. And um, I believe we have the same situation next year in Detroit. So my point is that that may have some NHL markets, NHL venues thinking differently um, if the years coincide with years in which the first round is the same week as the Frozen Four. I got you. Uh, if you were looking to, to take it to uh, non-traditional hockey markets, but NHL uh, markets, would uh, Vegas and even Seattle, uh, because the next three Frozen Fours are pretty, uh, they're established already where they're going to be, but four years from now, there'll be an NHL team in Seattle. Could that be a market? Yeah, so first off, for your listeners, the the bid process is going to look at awarding the bids for the 23, 24, 25, and 26 Frozen Fours. So that's the four years that they're going to award. As you mentioned, the next three are already situated. Um, but to answer your question, Vegas and Seattle, obviously those are two non-traditional markets when you consider the, the Frozen Four and, and even to some extent hockey, although the NHL and hockey is becoming more solidified each and every day, each and every year in the city of Vegas, and I'm assuming it will get in that direction in the city of Seattle once the NHL franchise is, is going up there. Um, so, yeah, I think those would be ter- excellent type of uh, markets and, and venues to put the 
the event in. I, you know, for for me and, and how I look at this event, you know, there's there's a lot of tradition and history surrounding the event, um, and there's a lot of history and tradition. Uh, history and tradition surrounding some of the markets that the event has been in, you know, the St. Paul's of the world, the Boston's of the world. Um, those are markets the event should always be in. Those are hockey hotbeds, college hockey hotbeds, hockey hotbeds. Um, the event deserves to be there regularly. Um, but I think we have an opportunity here to grow the sport, enhance the game, uh, promote it on a, on a wider scale to, um, a larger audience by moving not every year but every so often into a non-traditional market um, that can help showcase our game differently than than maybe it has in the past and so whether that's a, a Vegas a Seattle a Los Angeles a Dallas you know Nashville's been mentioned um, certainly Tampa's been involved in the Frozen Four so that's been a good one uh, Chicago, we need to be going back to Chicago, um, just with obviously the history of hockey there. And then the Northeast, obviously Boston's going to be in the mix, and it should be in the mix, but, um, you know, Midtown Manhattan and Madison Square Garden, the wor- world's most famous arena, as they call it, um, you know, I know you couldn't do it quite regularly there, just given the cost and the logistics and, and what goes into putting on events there, um, but it would be incredibly exciting and fun to bring a frozen four to uh, New York city. 30% of uh, players in NCAA hockey are Canadian. Obviously Canada is a uh, hockey hotbed and a strong market traditionally for hockey. Could you ever foresee the day a frozen four is played in Canada? Um, I would love it to happen. Guy. I, uh, you know, I, I think there's certainly some hurdles there, but the history, rich, rich history and tradition of the sport in the country of Canada uh, is obviously uh, incredible. And and whether it be professional hockey or junior hockey or youth hockey across the country through grassroots programs, um, people that live in Canada obviously love hockey. And so bringing college hockey's crown jewel event, even though we, from a member institution standpoint, don't have a footprint in the country, um, I think would be a great opportunity. Um, you know, the city of Toronto or even the, the western side of the country and maybe consideration of Vancouver or Calgary or, you know, heck, even maybe a Winnipeg. But, you know, Toronto is kind of being the epicenter of, of the country there, um, I think would be a, a great, great opportunity in the future. Whether we could get to that point, um you know, I, I don't know the answer to that one. All right. Lastly, a uh, hard-hitting question, a journalistic question from uh, Jeff Bennett, who's the uh, head coach of the uh, ladies' soccer team at, uh, I think it's Colorado College. He wants to know what your favorite uh, 80s song of all time is. First of all, Jeff Bennett lives five houses down the street from me in Colorado Springs, um, and he's a good man, and he's a good soccer coach, and he knows that I am a 80s music listener. Um, I give you two groups. I'm not gonna give you a song. There's there's too many of them to give you. I'll give you two groups: uh, Journey uh-huh. and Bon Jovi. All right, seen Bon Jovi a few times in concert. How many for you? Uh, once. Just once. Which tour? Just once. Though, which yeah. tour was that? Uh, it was. It wasn't. I don't believe it was on his official tour. I saw him at uh, an event called Lucky Palooza at Churchill Downs in Kentucky outside. It was quite the experience. Excellent.
Well, yeah. listen, Josh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for doing this again in the off season, and uh, looking forward to some NCHC hockey this coming summer or summer this coming fall. We wish we could start playing some hockey this <laughs> this coming summer. It's everybody's starting to get the itch. Ski. Thanks for having me. Always good to talk to you, and uh, happy to do it anytime. That was Josh Fenton, commissioner of the NCHC conference in the NCAA. Quite the dominating run right now for that conference. Uh, Four national championships in a row, and the University of Minnesota Duluth Bulldogs looking to make that an ultra-rare three-peat. Hasn't happened since the 50s, as you heard uh, Mr. Fenton talk about there. Moving quickly, next up is the USHL, and that means another Ask the Commission segment, this time with Tom Garrity from the United States Hockey League, up next here on the Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Hey, this is Brock Besser from the Waterloo Blackhawks. Hey, it's Kyle Connor from the Youngstown Fans. I'm Mr. Gary Gunstons from the View of Crying Sane. Hi, it's Ali Sullivan from Sioux City Musketeers. Hi, this is Ryan Patolny, former player with the Lincoln Stars. This is Cooper Marodi from the Sioux Falls Stampede. Blake McLaughlin from the Chicago Steel. Hey, this is Sam Gagne, formerly the Sioux City Musketeers of the USHL. Hey, I'm Wade Allen from the Tri-City Storm. Hi, this is Tom Gilbert, former Chicago Steel player. Jack Curry from the Waterloo Blackhawks. It's Casey Middlestaff from the Green Bay Gamblers, and you're listening to The Pipeline Show. These Spruce Grove Saints are excited to unveil their first ever hockey school. Taking place August 19th to 23rd right here at the Grant Fear Arena. Brought to you by Subway and Humpty's Restaurants of Spruce Grove. This one-week hockey school includes over 10 hours of on- and off-ice instruction from Saints coaching staff and current Saints players. Each camp participant will receive a camp jersey and a t-shirt to keep and have one on-ice and one off-ice session per day. Each day will have a specific focus to enhance the skating, shooting, and puck handling skills of each player. Both boys and girls of all levels of all experience are encouraged to come out and take part. To cap off the week, each group will have a Subway sub-party with the Saints coaches up in the lounge. Visit www.sprucegrovesaints.ca to sign up for the Hockey School now. Click on the Hockey School tab on the right side of the page. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. We're back on the Pipeline Show. We just finished uh, with Josh Fenton from the NCHC, and we moved to another league south of the border, south of the Canadian border, that is. And we're going to look at the USHL, and that means Tom Garrity, the commissioner of the USHL, back on the Pipeline Show. Tom, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And uh, as I've been saying awesome. with all the commissioners that join me, boy, I'm finding out that the, the off season is not the off season anymore. And uh, I imagine for the USHL, <laughs> it's a, a 12 month of the year job as commissioner as well. Yeah, it, it, it sure is. I mean, it's funny because I, uh, you know, people think, I mean, even when I used to be an operator of teams, it's, it's people generally think like the summertime and being related to hockey is usually when you'd be slow and, even running the team that as people run teams know that's the busiest time, hmm. you know, whether it's selling tickets or sponsorships or getting your team and staff ready, 
but with the USHL, yeah, I mean, we're pretty much, you know, we, we have kind of benchmarks. We go to from our draft to the NHL draft, to getting our schedule done to, you know, next thing you know, now we're getting ready for the fall classic here in September. So it's pretty busy. All right. Well, we'll touch on the fall classic in a little bit, but before we look ahead, let's yeah. look back and, and what were, uh, you know, two or three of the, the big highlights, uh, moving, uh, when you look back at last season for the USHL, what stood out for you? Well, I mean, again, I think coming out of the draft, you know, we were pretty tickled that we had, you know, over 50 kids selected in the NHL draft, you know, obviously with a big chunk of those coming from the development program, which we're proud to say is a part of our league, tied in with USA Hockey, a great partner of ours. Um, I think that was very, very positive. You know, we, we established a very strong vendor deal this year with Bauer, um, and they, they've come on board to help us with our equipment supplier needs, and they've been fantastic to work with, and that was really beneficial you know, financially for the league um, and its member clubs. I think, you know, our attendance, you know, showed overall as a league, you know, slight tick up, not not a huge leap, but going in the right direction. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we had a great final with Sioux Falls and Chicago, two fantastic teams. And so, I mean, overall, there was just a lot to be happy about, you know, great owners, you know, great member clubs, uh, a lot of great players and great coaches and, you know, and managers. So a lot to be thankful for, but uh, that's, you know, that's just kind of a few. The association with the uh, National Development Program has been a really good one for both the UN for the program. Uh, it certainly gives their their uh, U17 team a high caliber uh, competition every night. Helps them get better and and the uh, the draft success. It's really put a spotlight on your league. And you mentioned the the draft this year with over 50 players being taken and eight of those guys in the first round from the program. Just a, a benchmark year for the program and thus for your league as well. It's, it's been a really good fit for, for both parts. Yeah. I mean, we're thrilled, you know, um, they, they, you know, I, I actually came into the league in 2012 and they were already obviously in the league. And, mm-hmm. you know, since I took over as commissioner the last couple of years, you know, the partnership is strong and, you know, obviously the, the class that came out this year was, um, you know, I, an epic class was led by Jack Hughes and, you know, they've always got a tremendous amount of players and the nice thing about it is, is I think, you know, having, you know, the 17s and 18s in our league, it highlights how strong those players are, but ultimately it shows how strong our league is. And, you know, we have a lot of great players that, you know, are, you know that aren't on the development program, but, you know, playing against each other makes them better. And I just think it's just a perfect marriage. Uh, all right, moving ahead, uh, the the first thing on the agenda would be the fall classic and back in Pittsburgh this year. And, and again, that's the, how many years now in a row has it been in Pittsburgh? This will be the third. This will be a third. I think I'm correct in saying that. This will be the third, and you know the Penguins are a fantastic partner. Uh, we went back this year. You know, it's a great spot. You know, where we can get, um, you know, all the teams in one spot, and all the scouts from all over the NHL and college and all over the world. You know, uh, ascend on Pittsburgh for, you know, pretty much a week of hockey. It's tied into with a youth tournament. That's kind of fun too. Um, so just collectively, the way the Penguins have set it up, their support, um, you know, the various ranks that we have to use throughout Pittsburgh and the surrounding areas has been really, really helpful. And I think the feedback from, you know, um, Dan Marr with Central Scouting and other individuals tied into the NHL, you know, they really enjoy it and um, you know, couldn't be more uh, happy than being in Pittsburgh. Youngstown, Ohio, the easternmost based uh, franchise in the USHL, so Pittsburgh is outside of your footprint. Is that important to kind of expand the the the, uh, the exposure of the USHL outside of where your franchises are located? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think you know, um, I think initially when we talked with the NHL and and everyone about Pittsburgh, I think uh, they they did kind of look at it that it was out of the footprint, but then understood that we are trying to get some exposure. 
you know, obviously there's a lot of interest in our league from out east and there's a lot of interest out west and south and all the places in between, you know, our footprint. But for the most part, um, it has been a really good showcase for us. Um, ultimately, this is an event that we want our players to get an opportunity to be you know, looked at by a variety of different scouts and, and pers- you know, hockey personnel. So um, even though it is out of the footprint, I think now everyone's kind of looked at it as it had a lot to do with the Penguins and, and, and how they operate. It's a first-class event, and I think everybody now looks at it like this. This made a lot of sense. Now that said, with the Penguins, and maybe if it's if it's not broke, don't fix it. But would you like to move this around a little bit too to to further push that exposure? You know, have it in Texas with the Dallas Stars, or in Arizona with the Coyotes, yep. or or something like that. Is there an interest in in moving it around a bit? Yeah, I mean, and they understand that, and they've been, again, great partners, and we've been very upfront with them, and they they understand it too, because you know they obviously have busy arenas, and you know it, it's a quite a big undertaking for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whether we go back or not, you know, if that's what we do, then you know that's if it, if they're happy with that, then I, I don't see a problem with it. But I mean, just to be candid, I mean, I, I'm sure this is an event that we would like to maybe have it, you know, have a look see around and see if there's some different cities that can you know, take it on and, and, you know, give, give, do, you know, different areas a chance to see what our league's all about. So that, that definitely could happen. Um, right now we're happy in Pittsburgh, but that, that could be an option. Tom Garrity, the commissioner of the USHL, my guest here on the Pipeline Show. Uh, Tom, what is this year, you're going into year three for you in that role? Um, it feels like it, but it's only year two. Okay. I'm just finishing up my second year. <laughs> um, uh, I say that jokingly. Uh, but yeah, I'm just finishing up my second year and, so, you know, I've been in the league the previous, you know, almost a decade since 2011-12, you yeah. know, working with individual teams on, a, on an operator basis. But, yeah, it's been fun. It's gone quickly. Tell me about how the administration part of it works within the league when it comes to, you know, rule establishment or, or changing rules or yeah. just different policies. Is it, I mean, do you have, do you wield that ultimate authority as commissioner or is it all done by committee? How does that work? Well, I'm starting to, you know, I, my background is really more of a business background. So, um, you know, when they hired me, I think that was something that they were looking to try to try to kind of accelerate a little bit with our clubs and whatnot. So I was smart enough to hire some really good people that know hockey a lot better than I do. <laughs> hired a great deputy commissioner, Denny Scallon, who, who had been at the North American Hockey League for a long time. We have a gentleman named Evan Rand and Sean Morgan in our office that uh, handle our hockey operations. But to your point, we also have a very strong competition committee which is um, a group of essentially three, you know, general managers in the league elected by their peers. And then we have three uh, are basically um, um, individuals from our board of governors that are on it. So a six man crew can be a little bit higher from time to time with the chairman and what we've done to do our rules and regulations. We've got that all through this committee. Um, we get a lot of feedback from people outside that committee related to, you know, the teams and the coaches and whatnot. So collectively we kind of do all that stuff. But ultimately, if there is a decision that has to be made, I'll be the one making that decision. Now, the the role of the or the mandate, I would say, of the USHL. What's what is the role for the USHL in your mind? Is it to to push players to the NCAA? Is that a primary goal? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, obviously, when you look from our sixteen to twenty year old uh, age bracket, so to speak, you know, I think our goal is to develop as many players as we can that ultimately, yeah, that go that definitely go on to play Division One hockey. And then hopefully uh, on to the next level. You know, NHL is the dream, and mm-hmm. but if that doesn't work, hopefully they can play professional hockey somewhere. And so, but for, we're the first kind of step in the in that process where 
you know, we're taking our players and, you know, the next step would be to go to Division One college or, you know, or Division Three or whatever, play college hockey. I know uh, a number of years ago, Zemgis Gergensen's moved right from the USHL to professional hockey, but that's uh, the uh, he's the exception to the rule. Most guys will go USHL and then play college hockey and then on to pro hockey. Would you like to see more of that, though? Would you like to see more guys going right from USHL to, to the pro ranks? Well, again, I, I, I'm a big proponent of uh, kids going to college. So I, I love the fact that, you know, and, and I think, if, you know, talking to – Talking to folks in the NHL and even, you know, obviously, you know, coaches in, in college hockey, I think this is a really good league for just that, where these kids can come in and develop and commit to a school and go experience, you know, um, a great part of their life going on to university or college and, and, and getting to play hockey and developing their skills there. And then when they're ready to get into the pro ranks, they can do that. So I'm, uh, again, you know, hey, there's always exceptions to the rule. There's a fantastic player who gets drafted high and, mm-hmm. and the best decision for him to go play pro hockey and make money. And, and he's ready to do that. And his family and his advisors and the team that drafted him feel that he's ready. Hey, more power to him. But ultimately, our league's set up to have the kids go on to Division One, Division Three college hockey and play and then ultimately move on from there. Tom, I've talked to a number of uh, your counterparts, uh, whether it's on the Canadian side of the border or, or south of the border, and, and every league seems to have its own unique characteristics and, and unique challenges. What are some of those for the USHL in, you know, in, in your market uh, at being the United States? So what are some of the things that are unique about your league and, and maybe some of those mm-hmm. obstacles you have to clear every year? Well, uh, again, another really good question. I think our, our biggest obstacles are related to, um, our league is just, you know, making sure that all the member clubs are working uniformly to make sure that the players have a great experience. And ultimately, you know, kids have other options and it's a competitive landscape out there with major junior and, you know, the uh, other leagues and um, around, um, you know, uh, the world, so to speak. Um, and I think, you know, so one of our biggest obstacles is just making sure that all the teams operate at tier one standards. So making sure they have the right coaches, making sure that they have trainers and good facilities and good venues and are putting resources into the experience for the player. So that player wants to be in our league and wants to stay in our league. And so I think those are just some of the obstacles that we face, making sure that we're all running on the same page. And sometimes we're not. You know, sometimes we have to have conversations with clubs to make sure that they're doing all the right things. Everyone has been really good since my two years have been in the, in the league, and I really appreciate all the work they've done that. So I think that that's just kind of, you know, it's a competitive landscape out there, as you know. And I think kids do have other options, and I think, you know, we just can't rest on our laurels. We just can't rest on the fact that, hey, we have so many kids drafted in the NHL. We have so many kids that go to D1 you know, uh, college hockey programs, you know, we have to make sure that every single year we're getting better and better and better. And so that, those are some of the things that I focus my energies on. You know, again, I think the positives are, so we do have great teams. We do have iconic franchises. I think our footprint is, you know, a really strong footprint, you know, it's, you know, play on the weekend and it's predominantly a bus league. And, and I think that the, the places these kids are going to are, they're treated really, really well. They're part of the community. I think, you know, the league has a very strong reputation. And if you get into our league, you can go on and play, you know, Division One, and then get on to the pros. So all those are very positive. So all the work that's been done prior to my taking over the reins here, you know, I'm very thankful for because I really benefited from a lot of that work that was done before me. And I just continue to try to emphasize that as we, you know, move forward with a kid to say, hey, you know, why you can come play for us. 
you can go play college hockey on a scholarship and then ultimately you can play pro, you know, and that's, that's the path that we, we want to show these kids. Hockey's grown so much in the United States over the last couple of decades, and I know even the NHL has problems getting on TV uh, south of the border. Is that something that's uh, been difficult for you? Is there a TV deal for the USHL? How many of your games are on TV? Well, yeah, we're on hockey TV, so we're streamed. So, you know, if if fans, you know, want to watch um, their team or parents and, um, you know, just whoever, mm-hmm. uh, average fan wants to, to follow their particular team or, you know, um, our league, they can't, you know, they can stream it online. <laughs> and, um, and what we've done is we've really gone to big, big, um, um, uh, measures to make sure it's all in HD and that they have the camera that they need and all that kind of stuff. And so that, that's one venue that they can take a look at, um, our product and, but we need to get better at that. We definitely need to get better at that. And we have talked to, um, you know, um, you know, teams have talked regionally to try to get their games on, and it's not always the easiest thing, you know, because there's an expense to it and kind of an expense revenue ratio and what they're really trying to get out of it. As a league, you know, we have talked to various groups to try to see if we could do some things, and today we haven't really figured anything out yet that makes sense for us. Again, I think, you know, you know, we, we still have to expand, you know, um, our, our brand a little bit stronger. So, again, another thing that we're working on, you know, we do play on the weekends, which sometimes does run into problems with programming just because they have other things that they've already committed to. But, you know, we, we have a great relationship with the NHL, and we have been talking to the NHL network about trying to see if we could do some things on their station or their platform network. And I think also, you know, we're talking about um, having our game our uh, top prospects game, you know, which I believe we're going to be moving to Plymouth this year at the development um, in the NDPP arena. And uh, we hope to have that game on the NHL network. So, we're, you know, baby steps, but it's definitely something that we'd love to try to get more um, more exposure with. Well, that was a question uh, that came in from Mark Citron uh, for the voice of the Chicago Steel. Uh, he wanted me to ask you about the expansion of the uh, of viewing package, the online package through hockey TV and whatnot. And I was going to ask you about the top prospect game, uh, and uh, you've already mentioned it now. Plymouth uh, seems to be the target. Is, is that confirmed, or still some details to work out? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we still got to work out some details. But you know, the USA Hockey came to us, and we, I think, as a board, you know, they they were good with me and and our our league office just working out the details. So John Van Diesburg, you know, who um, does a great job with USA Hockey, you know, came from our league, obviously a very famous goaltender, um, you know, came from our league in Muskegon, and now he's our, our point person with our relationship there, along with a few other good guys. Um, you know, we're working through the details on that. But, you know, we're excited about it, and I think if we could get it all kind of across the finish line, uh, we'll probably, for the next foreseeable two or three years, have the game there. Tom, the uh, USHL and the NAHL, I think a couple of years ago there were some changes made, maybe some uh, to clear up some movement between the two leagues. What's that relationship like between y- yourselves and the uh, the NAHL? Oh, it's great. You know, we, you know, we've, um, you know, we, we really respect the league a lot. Mark Frankenfeld and his crew do a great job there. You know, they've got a, a really good league. You know, obviously we're, we're all for the ladder of development. So with, you know, with support of USA Hockey, you know we've we've entered into do a, a multi-year deal with them, you know, just for transfer of players and make it more um, accessible for their kids to come and you know um, come into our league. And if you know if there's some situations where some of the kids are released from our league and they can go and play there, um, you know, so it's it's just been a really good really good setup for us. And 
you know, Mark's been, you know, a pleasure to work with. Hopefully you know be chatting with him and you know, he can kind of fill in that his league. But, you know, it's it's been a good setup for everybody and you know, I think this year we had more, you know, call ups so to speak, um, uh, with the NA than we've had in years past. Um, so their players are, you know, developing, coming into our league, playing on our teams and making a difference and, and you know, contributing to the success of our league. Now, I'll have Mark on the show here uh, shortly as well uh, coming up this oh, week. So, so I'll chat with him about uh, that. Uh, now, when it comes to uh, reaching players uh, outside of your footprint, you know, the hockey's grown so much in, in, uh, in non-traditional hockey markets like ca- California and Florida and, and Texas and wherever you want to go. Arizona now is starting to boom as well. How do you reach those players? How do you introduce them to the USHL and, and get them to come to your league? Well, again, you know, what we try to do is, you know, we've had, you know, in the past, and we've, we've tailored it down a little bit, um, but we used to do some clinics and some, some combines and some events, you know, from Buffalo. We did some stuff out west in Los Angeles. Um, it's interesting, but, you know, our individual teams will go and do some things, which we, you know, we encourage. They'll kind of run around in unique footprints, you know, some of the states that you mentioned that, you know, we don't have teams in, and they'll do some camps and some clinics, and, you know, that's a good way to get our brand out there. Uh, but we really focused, you know, obviously the fall classics a big deal because we bring in a lot of youth teams and, and I think we'll have 80, 80 plus some youth teams involved from all over the country that will come into the, into the event uh, in September. And so that helps with our brand because, you know, obviously we're the, we're the games and a lot of these, uh, young players are watching and coming and it's a really fun thing. Um, we're doing something down in Texas later this year in January. Uh, late December, early January, where we're going to have a couple games there tied into a Frosty Cup event. Um, we're actually going to play um, one of the games at the Cotton Bowl, where the where the outdoor game is going to be this year. So that should be pretty cool. But then ultimately, we have um, four different combines that we hold in Chicago, and we invite players from all over the U.S. And so those are some you know good way to get the kids from all over to come into Chicago, for, you know, different age groups and whatnot. And they have an opportunity to come in and play on teams and then be scouted and looked at by our coaches and GMs and stuff like that. And those have been very, very successful. So we could still be a lot better at it. You know, we do do, you know, the traditional collateral and, you know, send things out and we're constantly trying to beat the drama about our league and whatnot. But, you know, I think, um, again, in, in fairness to the people before me, there was a lot of good work already done before I showed up and we just kind of taken the baton and tried to, you know, move it up the field, so to speak, a little bit. So those are the things we focus on. Seems like there's more and more Europeans coming to the USHL as well and, and North America in general, but your league uh, uh, is uh, seeing an influx of Europeans too. And Canadians are important to your league as well. How do you keep nurturing that relationship uh, from those two talent pools? Yeah, again, I think, you know, again, those are those are some things that sometimes grow organically, as you know. So we do, you know, we're, we're still predominantly a U.S. roster and we do have, uh, um, you know, a, a, select, a select amount of players from each team that can be imports, which, you know, obviously t- Canadians are thrown into that uh, category. But as you mentioned, whether it's European or Canadians, you know, um, a lot of good players have come from those areas and been in our league. I think that, that helps a lot. So they can also see that instead of maybe going a different route, they can come in and, 
play in our league and then go to college and then go on to play pro hockey. And again, that kind of falls back into one of your earlier questions. That's what we're about. Mm -hmm. So I think before maybe it was like, well, I want to do this because I got to do it this way. Now kids, I think, are looking at it. I know the NHL is looking at us a little bit too, saying that, hey, this is a good route. This is a good route to do this. And so I think that helps us get some of the better Europeans and better Canadian players that come in. And, and um, yeah, we're really proud of that. So, you know, it is a global league, but, you know, obviously we are a United States hockey-based league, and that's what we'll continue to be. But um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have uh, these kids from all over the world you know, be a part of our league. Tom Garrity from the USHL is my guest. And, Tom, I opened it up on Twitter to uh, questions from – the, your fan base, and uh, there's a few that have come in. Seymour Sports uh, has asked about uh, reviving the Indiana Ice, and I know the uh, Central Illinois uh, uh, Flying Aces uh, just folded as well, so I'm not sure where you are with those two franchises, but uh, anything in regards to Indiana getting back to that market? Uh, not yet. I mean, um, Paul Scott, who is a big favorite of our our group in the league, you know, he was obviously the owner of that franchise up until they they suspended operation and um you know um he um did everything he could i think if that market ever presented itself again of course we'd be interested in it for sure but uh, just to be blunt nothing's going on with that right now and you know central illinois is also suspended operations you know and they're looking to try to um, figure out their next steps and i know we've been working with them pretty diligently to to see whether or not um, you know that franchise can operate somewhere else in the right situation, so they can have success, and um, so that's kind of where we're at with both of those. All right, with the uh, the market in <laughs> Illinois uh, not working at least to, at, at currently, do you have to look outside of your current footprint? Uh, I know NHL to Seattle is a Twitter handle that uh, wants to know if you could even expand <laughs> to California potentially or into the, the Pacific Northwest. And and Tyler King, who's a broadcaster. Uh, in um, in my province in Alberta, wants to know if you'd even consider yeah. expanding to Canada. Well, again, you know, expansion is a really interesting conversation. You know, I think right now we have 16 teams, and I think we feel really, really good about you know the talent pool and the depth. Um, great, great, great uh, connection as we discussed earlier with the North American League as far as uh, the latter development, um, strong relationships with USA Hockey and also uh, you know the NHL. So you know, I think. Um, you know, when we look, it's amazing. We get a ton of interest from all over. Um, you know, we have had, um, you know, some you know, major inquiries down south. We've had some major inquiries west and then also east. So I think, you know, we're obviously the U.S. is where we'd focus our energy in uh, for right now related to just the way we're set up and our partnerships that we have. And so, um, you know, we're looking at everything. Uh, how we do it is going to be the real key question. Um, you know, you don't want to just expand for just expansion sake, excuse me. You know, you want to do things to make your league better. And, you know, obviously there's um, all sorts of questions that go into that from, you know, logistical travel to player, you know, player pool to, you know, all the different little nuances, you know, from arenas and all the things, good ownerships and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the league, you know, the league, you know, um, is right now viewing all these options and kind of putting together. And I've been championing from our board of directors is, you know, I've been championing with come back to us and tell us what you think. And so over the next year, I'm going to really put a lot of energy into saying, Hey, this is maybe a good, good opportunity for us. And let's take a look at doing this. But, you know, like I said, I mean, it's competitive out there, but, you know, to add franchises, you know, what I've learned, you know, um, 
you know, you, you want to make sure you can get places that are going to be successful and be able to be stable. And, you know, to expand just to expand is sometimes, you know, could be the death of you. And so I think we're going to be very strategic on it. Would one of the concerns, I mean, you, you pride yourself on being a, a league that plays mostly on weekends and not during the week and, and allowing for, you know, as, as little time on the bus as possible. That would be a challenge if you expanded further, wouldn't it? It could be, definitely. So, like, when you even look at our, you know, we've had discussions about there's still some really good places right in our footprint that could be a possible expansion, right? You know, right, right down, right down the center fairway, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so, I, again, we, we look at those and we've had some opportunities and we've declined on a few of them just for a variety of different reasons. But, you know, you do bring up a good point. I mean, um, um, you know, if you went uh, south, and all of a sudden you went into, you know, Texas, so to speak, which, you know, we, I mean, obviously we have some, you know, inquiries from there and that, you know, we're having an event down there and we see value and, and that. I mean, you have to then start looking at, you know, you know, you just can't bring a couple teams in, right? It would almost have to be kind of a pot of teams. So they right. could have their own division and there could be a way, you know, a way that they can play amongst themselves and, you know, and then, then connect into the league as a whole. Because of that, yeah, yeah, you can't have a kid jumping on a bus to play Friday and Saturday and leaving on a Tuesday. A lot of these kids are in school, you know, and that's not what we're trying to do is have a kid, you know, be on a 19-hour bus ride to go play games for, you know, Friday and Saturday and come back. So, yeah, uh, that's a good point as to why we have to be really careful on where we go and how it sets up. Well, Tom, we covered a lot of ground, and I kept you uh, yeah. for a long time. I appreciate your uh, time here in the off season. Uh, anything else you want fans to know about what's coming up uh, this coming season? No, it was just, you know, hey, you to get an opportunity to, to get out to one of our venues, you know, uh, look at our website and uh, look at, you know, look at uh, how to watch games on hockey TV. And, and um, if you get a chance, if you're in one of our markets, stop in and watch our product. And I know uh, you'd be really, really happy to watch it. And we appreciate your time and giving us this opportunity to talk about our league and wish you all the best. Excellent. Thanks for your time, Tom. Thank you, Geek. My thanks to Tom Garrity of the USHL, Commissioner of the League, for coming on the show once again. He, he joined us uh, last summer as well, right after, I think he'd only been in uh, in that position for three or four months, uh, so it's good to catch up with him once again. Again, moving quickly on to the next Ask the Commission segment. This time, we're going to learn about the Inall, the NAHL, the North American Hockey League President and Commissioner, Mark Frankenfeld. Hear from him. Next, here on the Pipeline Show. Coach Dibbon could not resist leaving Newhook out there. Newhook will wind up out of his own zone. He went from Newfoundland to Victoria last year. Here he goes. Wide around the middle. Newhook shoots, scores! He does it again! Hi, it's Alex Newhook of the Victoria Grizzlies, and you're listening to the Pipeline Show. Nothing compares to the smile on a child's face after their wish has been granted. The Rainbow Society of Alberta is dedicated to granting wishes throughout the province to children who have been diagnosed with a life-threatening or severe chronic medical illness. And you can help too. View the wishes, refer a child, and donate at rainbowsociety.ab.ca or get involved as a volunteer. Having a wish come true fills a child's heart with hope and happiness. Visit rainbowsociety.ab.ca today. You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Guy Flaming. 
hey, as they say in hockey, let's do that hockey. And we're back on the Pipeline Show. We just got done uh, talking about the uh, USHL, and we're going to uh, talk with another league uh, south of the border. This time it's the NA, the North American Hockey League, and the president and commissioner of the NA is uh, Mark Frankenfeld. Uh, for the first time I've been able to chat with you, sir, and welcome to the Pipeline Show. Thanks for taking time in the summer. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks Thanks for having me. Always looking for the opportunity to talk about the North American Hockey League and, and answer any questions that anyone has. Well, I'll be honest, I'm, I've am i been looking forward to this one because I haven't had a lot of exposure to your league. And when I look at the league and, and some of the news that's uh, that's come out from the league over the last decade or so, it yours seems to be one of the leagues that's really grown the most in terms of uh, NCAA commitments. And I, and I think that is probably the mandate of your league is to help get players uh, to that next level. Are you seeing that growth as well? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, we... we... We, you know, we have a great partnership with USA Hockey and we have a great partnership with the USHL. You know, in the early 2000s, the, uh, the Junior A title split to Tier 1 and Tier 2 and the North American Hockey League kind of was, uh, you know, at that point, you know, without a, without the identity of being Junior A and trying to create what Tier 2 was in the States. And mm-hmm. over all those years, we just kind of kept trying to be the little engine that could. And I think all that hard work started to pay off in the last, you know, six, eight years. Um, so we've had a lot of success with, you know, in a lot of areas with, with, with markets, uh, ownership, um, and, uh, focusing on the player, which has really helped us improve, um, our ability to be relevant in the hockey community and, and do what everybody's taking the risk for here in our league. And that's about player, uh, player exposure and player promotion and, and seeing the numbers, uh, uh tick up, you know, quite, quite rapidly here, especially in the last five years. Yeah, the NA might be the largest league uh, that I that I've come across as well with 26 teams and also just geographically the footprint. I mean, you have a couple of teams in Alaska and you go all the way down uh, to the southern United States and to the east coast as well. Uh, we'll get we'll get to that in a second, but you mentioned the USHL and that relationship. I just chatted with Tom Garrity from the USHL as well and he touched on that relationship as well and how important it is for his league. From your perspective, what is that relationship? Do you I think some people would consider the NA almost like a, a, a farm team, uh, the AHL to the USHL's uh, NHL, if you want to use that comparison. Do you see it that way, or, or how would you describe that relationship? Well, I, I think the I think the definition of the league and, and its relationship is really kind of in the beholder and, and the individual-specific situation. I think that the USHL, uh, it's fantastic owners take a huge risk, provide an unbelievable product, and they, 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 the age category is a little bit younger than ours, and they're really, they're really gearing for the, for the NHL draft, and the majority of their guys already go on Division One, mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean it's that individual specific spot that every player needs to be in in their development path. And so we serve a really neat niche for players that develop late or, you know, maybe in a, a third line situation in, in that league, but are playing um, in a first line situation in the North American hockey league um, and such. And so we, we really are working with between the leagues right now of making sure the players are in the right spot to develop, to get to where they need to get. And, and with the North American hockey league, I think the biggest piece for us is that players play college hockey. And, you know, we have a couple other subsidiary leagues that we work within and within our own family and also other certified USA hockey leagues. Mm-hmm. And our goal is that if they, 
if they get to college within our family, that's great. If they go to the USHL and then get to college, that's great too. So ultimately we are a service in that, that role for these players to play college hockey. And, and uh, if it's best for them to be playing and they're developing and, and getting what they need in the North American hockey league, which, which we really do a pretty good job of, of, of more players earning that college opportunity while playing in our league, than any other league that's out there. Um, we're okay if they move on to another league that, that, that the ultimate goal is to get into college. So uh, in some in some view, it could be a development type of a farm concept. Um, you know, we don't we have the same similar business model where our owners start out with zero dollars, provide completely free hockey, and have to go earn that uh, dollars and that revenue through ticket sales and corporate sponsors and all the things that you do, you know, right. in a typical junior A model. So our model's similar. So the the financial risk is similar. The the uh entrepreneur that owns the team that, that becomes philanthropic in terms of writing some checks to provide this this opportunity is similar. So there there's there's a lot of similarities in in between the two leagues and differences. More similarities between our leagues than 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 any other league are are, are to us, if you will. But ultimately, it's a, it's it's viewed as a partnership, and um, you know, if it's a player that that, that moves on and it's best for them to develop there and move on, then that's great. And if there's a player there that needs to play more, or their age, or their their development cycle, wherever they play here, so we really work together on what's best for the player. Uh, don't necessarily view it as a farm, you know, development league specifically to exist for the USHL, but we work really well in the same ecosystem and focus on the players and giving them the opportunity to get to college. That I think is our common goal. Is there player movement between the two leagues during the course of the season, or is that at the start or at the end, depending on where a player is at in his development? Yeah, no, it, it, it happens. It's pretty fluid. And, um, our coaches work together pretty well. Our teams work together pretty well. What we just did here recently, which I give, uh, uh Commissioner Gary a lot of credit for and, and his partnership coming on board here last year is we finalized, uh, um, an agreement, a player agreement between the two leagues and some of the features that, you know, to simplify really basically, um, allow them a little bit more access to affiliate players um, during the season, and also the relationship to uh, to the player movement for the for the North American Hockey League. Um, it probably gives us a little bit more protection for some veteran guys and making some decisions with some veteran guys and stuff like that. But basically, it gives the coaches the rules of the road and how to engage um, so that so that the players are being treated fairly and there's respect along those lines with all the different forces you know, that you deal with, 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 you know, players and agents and advisors and, and all the anxiety about, you know, with a young guy that's trying to make all the right decisions to be in the right spot to move up. But, but that, that, that agreement was executed last year between us and the USHL. We've been working with the, within the realm for a while, but, but to formalize it was really big for both leagues. And it just puts our coaches now in a position where they have the rules of the road of engagement. They can work better for what's best for the player. So it's a, it's a, we view it as a big win from our end. Mark Frankenfeld is the president and commissioner of the uh, NAHL. He's my guest here on the Pipeline Show. Uh, Mark, uh, th- I mentioned the title, president and commissioner. Is is it uh, one job or do you uh, wear two hats? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's... it's uh, it goes back to the story of the North American Hockey League. Just like any, you know, junior team, you know, you're small. You got a lot of folks in an organization wearing the same hats. I, I was just having a conversation this morning. We started off with 
Now, I think when I started, it was me and, and maybe two other folks in the office, and, and, and I think two of them were part-time or on a contract basis. Now we're at, we got 11 full-time staff here, and, and we're rocking and rolling in a lot of areas. But I think the, the, the role grows out to um, – I deal with a lot of the business side of it too, and, and I did a lot of that stuff early on. So, the, so it's, it, those are the two titles, but there's pretty much n- nothing in, in the realm here that I don't do or haven't done, but I, you know, I, 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 just, I just try to wear it uh, – I just try to wear it very responsibly – um, you know, and I, I typically go by commissioner. I think that that's the one I'm more comfortable with. All right. Uh, one of the things I've been asking all the commissioners that I've been chatting with over the course of, uh, well, July now into August, but, uh, is when it comes down to, uh, forming, uh, different rules or uh, changing anything about the league, does the ultimate say, uh, fall to you or do you, I mean, do you, how much power do you wield in that regard? Or is, <laughs> is there a, a larger committee that sort of, uh, gets it all done? Yeah, I, you know, there's an old saying there, you never, you know, know how much power you have until you overuse it, right? So, right. but we, but the reality is, is we're a member driven league and so our owners make all the decisions. And the way that we're structured is I work for the 26 owners. Those are, those are basically my, my bosses and, and I have to manage that board and, and, and through an executive committee and through other different committees, competition committees and stuff like that. And then I've got a staff that works for me, but, but, in general, the uh, the board um, has been pretty consistent. We've had a lot of we've we've had a lot of consistent folks on the board. The the owners of the league are are very uh, very good good you know just good solid people. They have uh, now a lot of experience with being in the league six eight nine ten twelve years and, and beyond, and they provide pretty good guidance, but. Through that process, um, they've you know given us some autonomy, you know, based, based on building some trust between between everybody. But ultimately, they're they're the deciders. Uh, one of the things that, that that they really were focused on, you know, I don't know, six, eight, ten years ago, is not to just keep changing the rules because it was a one-off situation or you know it affected somebody in a certain area. So we've built a pretty good, uh, consistent structure, um, you know whether it be through the bylaw structure or the, or the rule structure, that's good for one, good for all. And, um, and, you know, really we don't have a lot of, you know, uh, tragic moments in that, in that world. We have a great group of owners. We have a great executive committee. Um, our, our most recent owners, um, you know, are, just seem to be more passionate about the, the community and providing the opportunity for the players, um, seem to be continually to get more sophisticated. Um, and at least, at least we like to think that. But at the end of the day, the owners are in charge of the league. I work for the owners, but you know, I've, I'm going on year 13 here and, and a lot of the owners have been around for a long period of time. And we, it just seems to be a really good fit and we have a really good, um, really good structure, really good evolution, and uh, things are in a really good spot right now in that whole area. Mark, uh, I always like to talk to the commissioners and and get their perspective on uh, the unique challenges or differences of their their league compared to others. And certainly the two that I mentioned earlier that jump out to me are the number of teams and the geography uh, of your league. Um, 26 teams, it's a lot of teams, and that geography, (laughs) as I mentioned, coupled in Alaska and you get down into the southern United States and on the East Coast and, and a lot right near the border as well in the Minnesota and, and Dakotas. Uh, how, what's that like? How do, you, how do you manage that as a, as a commissioner and as a league to, when it comes to travel and things like that? 
Well, you know, it's um, it's always really easy. Uh, that was sarcasm. Uh, but, you know, you look at the history. Yeah, you look at the history of the league. At one time, uh, there were two uh, leagues. One was called the America West Hockey League, and one was called the North American Hockey League. And in the early 2000s, there was a little bit of a merger, and that America West League had a lot of the Montana stuff and the Dakota stuff, and it had the Alaska stuff. And then the North American Hockey League <clears throat> had started out as a, you know, a bus league in Michigan. Um, and through the merger and the evolution, um, the league has, you know, grown to, you know, to 26 at the moment. Um, in my, in my time, I started with 17, uh, we were at 28 for a bit, uh, 24 seemed to be a really good number. And just here recently, uh, we, we went, we moved the dial back to 26, but, but the, but the footprint, um, really evolved in some areas that had, um, some minor pro teams, that you know that model may have been a challenge um you had good communities you had good hockey people you had a good fan base and uh you know you look in the southern community there there's a there's a lot of big buildings there that were that that markets of hockey for a long time and our model seemed to be a really good model not only on the financial side but just the just the just the whole fabric and, and dna of what junior hockey is where you got a young guy coming to town living with a billet, you know, trying to live, uh, you know, write his own personal story is, you know, uh, be the hero of his own personal story and, 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 and do it for the community. Um, so that mission's worked really well down here in the South, the, um, Minnesota, uh, Dakota area, you know, you've got a few smaller buildings, great little towns. People just love hockey, uh, in those areas. Um, it becomes, you know, a big show, the only show in town, kind of the junior hockey, you know, typical, you know, junior hockey type model that we see, you know, that we've grown up to love. And then you, you've seen our evolution. Uh, if you're paying attention to the Northeast, um, you know, we had a, um, we had a couple, um, you know, uh, first pioneers out there and you know how they, the first pioneer takes all the arrows, but they did a great job getting through it and pioneered our East division. And uh, with the evolution of our Eastern division, we've just seen a whole new, uh, player pool uh, become interested in the North American Hockey League. We've seen, you know, been part of the the uptick in the, the college commitments. We've seen our, um, you know, our, our Tier Three North American Three Hockey League and our our North American Prospects Hockey League, our youth component, grow out there. And so we operate the divisions, uh, which we have four right now, as as uh, you know, in some regards, mini leagues. Right. They do a lot of they do a lot of ge- you know local travel. That's geographically sane and um we meet at the uh nahl showcase in blaine minnesota i think we're going on 15 years 15 years in that area there but the the blaine showcase is in september all 2016s are there the uh national u.s national team development programs there you know over three four hundred scouts there it's like the super bowl of showcases it's something i've can try to explain, but you only understand if you're actually there experiencing it. It's a, it's, 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 it's a great event. And, uh, but that's where we play together. Um, and then they do a lot of, we play crossover games there, the, the divisions do. Right. And then, you know, we meet again at another event later on, but, but I'll reserve some of that if you, if we get into the events, uh, the event structure, but, but ultimately, um, the, the challenge of the geography is there. We, we minimize it. And um, we we do have crossover games, and then we come together at the end uh, and have division champions play at a neutral site for the for the Robertson Cup Championship. And um, really, it's uh, 
it's not it's not it's not perfect, but sometimes perfect doesn't exist, so we don't let what's really really good get in the way of perfect, and we think it's a really really good structure, and we're having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I can't imagine a better system when you have that many teams and that sort of geography to deal with. So really interesting. I will ask you about those uh, uh, those other crossover events that you have uh, later in the season. You just mentioned the Robertson Cup, and just based on looking at last year's uh, bracket. Looks to me like the first two rounds are best of fives. Uh, the 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 semifinal series is a a best of three, and the final series is a, is a winner take all one game. Uh, is that how it works? Yeah, it's it's uh, you know it's it, it's something that the league has you know had a lot of discussion about, like many leagues do, and how to conclude it and how to do it you know properly for the for the players, for the competition, for the uh, for the business side of it. You know, all those things kind of collide. And um, the way I look at our, 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 our league championship is we give our players just about every experience to succeed in. And so if we're, you know, a development league, our players are going to get a chance to get through a uh, two rounds, two best of five rounds within their division, which is that, you know, local, closer, more realistic geographic uh, travel, uh, but also getting to play against their rivals in front of the fans and, and get that whole experience into play. And so the first two rounds, if you make it through there, uh, are best of five. And then what we do is we come to a neutral site. And in order to eliminate any, you know, tiebreaker, uh, we, we have the teams, uh, seated, you know, based on how they did. And we have them play the best two out of three. Mm-hmm. And so that way there's head to head competition, which we really believe in the way to conclude everything. And, um, they get a chance to play the best of three. We've had just about every situation we've had it. You know, where both teams have swept in the first two rounds, we've had it where one team swept and the other team didn't. And last year we had it where, you know, both teams went all three games and it's just created a very exciting event. And then, and then you get a chance to play off in the, in the game seven of the Stanley Cup or the one, one and done, right? And, and ultimately, you know, as I said, I, we've had a wonderful 60 game season. We had a two grueling best of five rounds. Uh, best of, uh, three, uh, head to head to get kind of the semis to get you into the, into the game seven. So we've given the players that are going down that journey every experience and opportunity to get there. And it, it, it really culminates into a, an exciting, uh, conclusion to, to the, to the championship, uh, the goal of becoming the Roberts Cup champion. Uh, obviously, you know, we get questioned on, you know, why don't we do the best of five at the neutral side? Or why is the last game only one game? You could be off the referee, this stuff like that. But, right. you know, ultimately, ultimately you can, you got to pick, you got to pick a poison at some point and figure out the best way to do it. And like I said, it's not perfect, but it's, it's really, really good. And, and it's working really well for the league. And, and again, for me, it, it, it provides, uh, for me, it provides, it, it completes our mission uh, in providing these guys an opportunity to, you know, again, play through a best of five, play a best of, of three, play a uh, game seven Stanley Cup, and that neutral site concept brings in more scouts um, and uh, allows us to provide more of that exposure opportunity down the stretch when some colleges may be making their final decisions or they've had some roster changes and, and uh, you know, all of that type of stuff. So I think it's a win and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, hits on a lot of cylinders. Well, it's certainly unique, uh, that's for sure. Uh, and now how do you uh, settle on uh, where the, the, neutral site games will be we uh we've had a lot of discussion on that and uh you know basically we've been in um we've been been in minnesota 
for five years. We've um, found you know, geographically Minnesota works. We, we run a lot of other uh, events, so we have a lot of partners in Minnesota, and um, we have a lot of players from that area. And so uh, geographically centralized, kind of uh, easy, accessible, having the fact that there's a heck of a lot of folks in Minnesota that, that, that love the game and yeah. come out and watch the game, having a lot of players that are from there where there's some ease of access of some players. And also it's not a bad, you know, it's right in the crosshairs for the scouts. Not only do a lot of them, not only do we have a lot of division one programs in that neck of the woods, but there's a lot of NHL guys that, that live in Minnesota and it's not difficult to get to and not unfamiliar for the scouts that don't live to get there. So it's, it again is a it again is a, we're going to we're going to year uh, six on it and it's been it's been a it's been a you know if you look at if you look at our last six years our numbers and college commitments have increased I couldn't blame it completely on the neutral site but it's certainly a part of our DNA that's helped that number increase for sure. Mark, how dependent is the league and the owners of the league uh, on at uh, on ticket sales uh, on on the gate? And I'm looking, you know, the couple of teams up in uh, Alaska. I assume they have uh, much higher expenses than the teams that are in the uh, the lower states and the mainland the mainland states. I guess that's not the right <laughs> word to use, but um, uh, the, I mean, for those teams to come down and play against their division rivals that are in the Dakotas in Minnesota. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming they're flying. I don't imagine they're bussing down. Yeah, uh, you know, look the um, the um, you know some of your major expenses, you know, when you're operating a team is your lease, is your travel, and is your staff, right? So you just identified, you know, the the uh, uh, an obstacle or a hurdle or a battle for someone that has a lot of travel or somebody, especially that's in Alaska. Um, but yeah, our our owners are basically creating a. Uh, a product that is starts at dollar zero, uh, doesn't charge the players at any level, and has to then come up with a way to manage um, uh, a, a six, seven, eight, nine, you know, one point one, you know, million dollar budget, and they have to they have to recoup that through um, ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to recoup that through you know corporate sales marketing. They have to do it through in game promotions. They have to do it through um, all the different features that that you know a typical team that's providing this uh, type of opportunity at no cost to you know basically a basically a mini type or a minor type of a of a pro team kind of model um, you know where they're paying for equipment and travel and meals and you know everything under the sun for the players um, they've got to find a way to recoup the cost and that that's why I called them. I call them philanthropic entrepreneurs because they're all business guys, they're gals, and they've made their money in other areas, and they want to give back to uh, hockey, whether it be through their community or whether it be through the players or or a combination of all those things. They take a very large risk, and um, you know their reward could be in, in making money. It's not always the case at the end of the day, um, but they but it could be in providing the opportunity for these players to move on. And uh, it's a pretty special group of folks. Um, you know that model exists in the USHL and the North American Hockey League, and those owners and in both of those leagues, especially in the in, in the U.S., are, are very special folks to take that risk. But but yeah, it's it's completely about ticket sales, corporate sales, you know, in-game promotions, anything they can do, uh, just like you would see at an NHL game, but it's on a minor, it's on a much smaller scale, if you will. Now, do you have? Uh, there's a lot of players who have come out of the NA and gone on to professional success do you see a lot of former players coming back as either owners or coaches is do you see that uh, kind of a, that cyclical uh, nature uh, to uh, your league as well 
you know, we, we've, we've had, we've had some of those. We haven't had, uh, you know, a ton of those. I would say, um, you know, a, a, a fairly well-known fellow that played junior hockey in the States that's involved in, and one of our teams at, at this time is Joe Pavelski and he's involved with the Janesville Jets being a Wisconsin guy just, and just Joe just recently being traded here to you know, where I live, where I'm standing in Dallas, Texas. But, um, you know, you, you get some of those folks, but, you know, um, but we don't have a ton of them. We don't have a ton of those guys um, that are coming to my head right now, but I, I don't think that's a negative thing. I just think in terms of, uh, you know, going through their careers and age and stuff, I think uh, they may not be at that point in their life yet when, when, you know, at some point to where we may see more of those guys. But um, we've had, um, you know, we've had a lot more NHL presence that really, you know, are from NAHL players that the NAHL made more of an impact in their life. So, you know, you could see more of that someday, but, um, but a lot of times you get, you know, you get that guy that's, uh, that loves hockey or is involved in hockey or um, is involved in the community and they connect all those pieces and they're the guys that, you know, made, made their money somewhere else and come back and, and want to get back. That That's kind of the more traditional uh, uh, owner that we've seen to this point. Mark Frankenfeld, the uh, commissioner and the president of the uh, NA is my guest here on the pipeline show. Um, you were mentioned earlier about uh, other showcase events during the course of the season. Uh, so you have the one, the first one in the Minnesota area that's early on in the season. Yeah, so we 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 run and we run a bit of a we, we run a, our, our our event structure is is kind of uh, you know we start off with uh we start off with what we call the Super Bowl showcases. We at least like to view it as that. It's uh, all twenty six teams where uh, they come together in Blaine, Minnesota. Then we run a uh, about a hundred team youth event underneath it uh, within uh, one of our leagues. So it's kind of a, what we call a vertical exposure model where you've got, uh, you know, junior guys in there and then you've got the youth guys in there. So um, colleges and pro guys can come and watch, you know, players in our league. They can go and watch, you know, the 18s, the 16s, the 14s, and then, you know, the junior coaches in our league and the USHL can come and, and they can watch the younger guys too. Um, and so that's our first event. And the, and the goal of that is to get it started early it helps us kind of solidify, you know, our rosters uh, and 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 finalize a lot of that stuff. And the goal there is to get players on the map, whether it be with, you know, NHL Central Scouting, whether it be with the NCAA uh, program. And then, uh, then, then at that point, our teams basically scatter to a regular season, you know, divisional uh, type of a schedule. Right. And the scouts can, you know, identify who they need to go out and see and, and, uh, you know, do their thing and, and make their list, check it twice and, and, and what have you. We then come back, uh, with our second event, um, which is called our top prospects tournament. And our top prospect tournament basically becomes an event, um, in February. And we do it out in, uh, Boston and, and, uh, Massachusetts. And what we do there is each division, uh, gets to send a team of uncommitted players. And so if you're committed, uh, you don't get to go because you've already got the opportunity to uh, move on to college, right? And so we sent a team of uncommitted players, and then we have two teams that would be called the NHL Selects, which is guided um, guided by the NHL Central Scouting um, uh, um, 
concept to where players that are committed or not committed, it doesn't matter if they're somewhere in the wheelhouse with potential NHL opportunity, they, they get to go. Okay. And so we send six teams out to the top prospect event. And again, the goal there is, is, is to make sure that we're providing players in our league um, every opportunity. We don't want to send committed guys out there from those divisional teams. And we want college guys to have a chance to see them play um, give them another measuring stick to play against the best of the players that are that are that are still available in the other divisions, plus potentially some of the best players we have with the select teams, and so it gives it a pretty interesting measuring stick for them to look as they're checking their list, you know, down the stretch. Um, and we do that out in the middle of February, and then we have underneath us at that point our our North American Three Hockey League, which is our Tier Three level. They also do a similar top prospect tournament. Uh, same concept of a vertical kind of exposure model where you have multiple levels of hockey under the same roof. And that's our top prospect event. And then we conclude with the Robertson Cup, which we just talked about here recently. And um, the Robertson Cup, like I said, is a division champion, and they come into Blaine, Minnesota. We play at the Fogarty Arena, and we have what we call a 18U uh, top prospect event underneath that. So, again, it's another vertical exposure model to where – you know, you have junior and college scouts there, and they can also go and watch the youth and also participate in uh, scouting and recruiting at the uh, NAHL level. And so we feel that those three events have been a really big piece of our core fabric in terms of uh, development exposure and opportunity for players and, and, and for the scouts to have the opportunity to see it. And it starts, like I said, with that shotgun approach, that early identifier comes to the top prospect tournament where you can sharpen up your sights and then the Robertson Cup is is you know kind of like finalizing your list and the biggest challenge we really have here is you know one day and not so long ago 5 years ago our top prospect tournament we had um we had a lot of players that that that, that weren't committed at the time and with the number of our commitments increasing like they have um, you know, the, 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 the pool at that event has kind of decreased a little bit. And, and that's a good thing. That's yeah. a good thing. That, that just means we're, that's, you know, we're getting, you know, we're getting deeper because we've, you know, we went from having, you know, you know, 60, 70 players committed by the, the deadline to 150 to 60 players committed by the deadline for that team to be picked. And yeah. so, um, it's pretty cool to watch the turnout and the exposure and the way those players still are getting opportunity and uh you know it's it you know our pool's already been picked through pretty good so it, it shows the depth of the league and um you know that that that's you know that that just makes it that just makes me and proud of everything we're doing as we continue to turn those numbers but but that's our event structure it's been in place for several years and we you know, we, we test it, we challenge it, we execute it, we plan it, we review it, and then we try not to outsmart our common sense and change too many things because it's it's working pretty good. Yeah, sounds like it's pretty successful. I got a couple more questions for you. I know I've kept you a long time Please. already, but uh, the, uh, a couple of years ago, well, actually it's about seven years ago, the Canadian Hockey League, Major Junior up here uh, on my side of the border, they uh, did away with the uh, goaltenders uh, from Europe in the in their annual import draft, and, and I I was against the decision at the time. It seemed like two leagues that really benefited from that decision was the USHL and the NAHL. Uh, you uh, suddenly got a lot of European goaltenders, uh, some top quality uh, European goaltenders coming to your league. How important are the imports uh, to the NA? I think um, I think the imports and and and, and also you know what you're referring to there. I think it, it it did it did help and it does help 
um, you know, with with the North American Hockey League, it, it it would bring somebody else into the building to see us that may not have seen us before um, at that level or been paying attention. Um, you know, we've seen that before when we do stuff with the national program. We've seen that before. Um, you know, when when folks get a chance to see our product, they're like, man. This is pretty. This is pretty daggone good. And then they come back, and so I, I think it's important. And as we, as we, you know, different than different than Canada, you look at the total population and the number of junior teams and stuff like that. Um, you know, the U.S. isn't in that same model to where the you know these higher end junior leagues are going to expand to that level. But we have expanded, and as we do expand. And as we do increase, we, we want to maintain the integrity of that level. And sometimes it takes a while to make sure you have um, that number of, of U.S. players to, to bring it to that level. So I think, I think we're in a good spot where we, we have access to four imports. It's not, it's, not, it's not huge, but it's enough. Not every one of our teams use the four imports, but they have the opportunity. I, I just think it's a really good mix. Where it, it, the formula that's in place right now is really working and uh but you know to your point um you know that that piece uh where where we may have gotten a goalie um or a player or two that we otherwise may not have gotten at one time or another in history um probably brought somebody else into our buildings and probably then recognized um that this product was legit and it yeah. was on the rise and it's somewhere to come back to and uh you know there was a day probably one of these young guys out there that were pretty good in midget hockey or whatever would say, well, if I don't make, you know, the USHL or whatever, I'm just going to play in the NA. And, um, it's not that easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that easy, especially anymore. So you better, better reset your, <laughs> you better reset your goals. But, but that's all been part of the evolution. And that's, that's one of the coolest things for me is the last 10 years. Uh, you know, I've been at this for 13 years. My history goes back, uh, to 92 coaching in the league and then, back in 99 coaching in the league and then working as an, in operations in 03 in the league. Um, but I'll tell you, just watching the evolution and especially the 10 years of what's happened here and, and where we are today, it's been so exciting, so proud of and happy for owners of the recognition they're getting and the ability to put the players on uh, in the colleges they do. I, I just can't wait for the next 10 years. I mean, it, if we can repeat how exciting the last 10 has been, it's going to be a great ride. And it's going to be in, in the, the winners are the players and the communities and the fans and the sport. And that's, that's what we're about. Last question or last uh, topic has to do with expansion. You mentioned uh, 24 teams was comfortable for you. You didn't really, you weren't looking to, to go bigger. You did. You're at 26. You have, Two uh, divisions that have seven teams, two that have six. I don't know if expansion is uh, something you would like to do in, in your future or, or not, uh, but we have had questions about you know a certain markets, and one of them is about uh, getting back to Canada. You had the Dawson Creek uh, team uh, up in northern BC yeah. at one point. Uh, would you like to get back to Canada, or do you want to stay at 26? Where are you at in, in all of those uh, uh, thoughts about expansion? Well, I'll, let me let me I'll give you a little evolution in the in the piece here. So when we when we grew uh, in, in the first time when we grew rapidly, I, you know, we we bumped up to twenty six one year, and we did it from like uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but we did it from like twenty or twenty two. It was a real big increase, mm-hmm. and we took some shrapnel for you know over expanding, and you know even though it's it's providing you know 
free hockey and the level that we do, we still took some shrapnel. And the reality of it was, is it was about timing and market availability. And that's when, that's when, unfortunately, you know, uh, for, 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 for some of the pro leagues, they were, they were having trouble with that model and um, not saying anything negative about any of that. And, and it was just about the reality of a team existing or not. So we had to be agile and move quick and, you know, get into place in those markets and then settle in at 24 for a while. And 24 was a really good number. And um, we, 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 we looked at just long-term sustainability and, 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 and how that really works. And, you know, you get to different points in your evolution as a league, and we finally got to a point where we could take a breath and we have teams that are here for a longer period of time and owners that I, you know, now I'm starting to grow older with and, and such. And you go, what, what, what's important here? So we, you know, I, I moved down in 99 with the Texas tornado in the South and, and that team went 15, 16 years is no longer here, but that, that division was at one team one time. And now with the South, you know, rose again and it's, and it's, and it's back up to seven teams in the division. And we're like, well, what's, what's the reality of this divisional concept? And we felt that eight was a really good number. So the players aren't playing the same teams too, too much. You're getting some, some variety. Um, Your travel's in a good spot to where it's, it's economical for the owners. Um, And if for some reason you had a problem that you had a team that, that struggled, which, which, you know, knock on wood, we've been fortunate. We haven't had a lot of those lately. Um, that you're down to seven instead of you're down to five because five goes to four, three, two, one really quick for a lot of different reasons. Um, and again, we haven't had any of these issues for a while, but, but, but we've had them in, in, in our, in our history and a lot, a lot of leagues through growing pains have them. Um, so we thought that it was best to, to look at how to get to eight. And we then did a lot of debt. We did a lot of research on the player pool and where our players were coming from and our commitment numbers, and we did a lot of historical data, and we figured um, through that stuff, it demonstrated that, you know, our players uh, today, over half of them are moving on to the NCAA every year, and uh, over 70, 80% of those are D1. And so some you start to look at that, and you're like, man, we might have a – if we want to continue to increase our commitments, we might have a we might have a player pool problem, and so – with the data of the age brackets ticking up and with the data that we're getting more players from different geographic areas and the fact that we want to continue to increase our numbers and provide more players to college hockey, it, it, it was a reasonable process to move forward with the 17. Now, when you do that, you got to do a couple things. You got to make sure it's the right market. You got to make sure it's the right owner. And you got to make sure he's, you know, in in check with the core mission and DNA of the North American Hockey League. And by golly, we got some great new owners. So our, you know, our last our last four owners have just been fantastic. And and and, and I say that our most recent four. I don't want to say the like the last fifth and sixth wasn't, but our most recent four were fantastic. In our in our two new ones uh, with the Albuquerque and the and the one up in in Lewiston Auburn up in Maine are are are, are awesome and they've just they're passionate and they've been doing you know the Lord's work of just bringing in a, a new era of North American hockey. So so we got those divisions at seven and as anybody's involved in scheduling and if you're trying to all play on Friday and Saturday nights, the reality is you probably got to ultimately get to eight so that you don't have any blackouts in your schedule and you can kind of continue on that mission. So we're probably on track to to get to eight in the East. 
and in the South. And, um, you know, does it happen next year? I don't know. Is it the goal to, you know, to get there as fast as we can? No. We want to make the right decisions and get there in the right time. So that kind of talks a little bit about the South and the East. In terms of our Mid-Central, we're pretty solid. We've got 10 teams on the ground and the Alaska guys fly in and out. And, uh, and so that's working right now, even though there's some incredible challenges and kudos to the folks in Alaska for all the efforts they make to make it work and uh, for their players and their communities and, and the other members of the team, they do a great job along those lines. And same with the players and the, or the owners on the ground that, that accommodate all that stuff. Um, but I would say that, you know, an, an evolution that we could be looking at beyond what I just explained could be some stuff in the Pacific Northwest and, 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 and out in that direction. There could be some reality of that on the horizon um, that, you know, there's, there's, there are players on the West Coast. There, are, there is a footprint to connect to potentially with Alaska. Now, we've done that before. We've had several teams out in that neck of the woods, and we're back to the Alaska team. So we're going to be really careful and really cautious. But, um, but, it, but it could be in, it could be in the – in the future, is that is that is that one year? Probably not. Is that three, five, seven, eight? Maybe. Who knows what the future could bring? But that that could be a reality. But then, you talk about Canadian teams, and, and I would tell you we're not opposed to Canadian teams, uh, Canadian markets. Um, there are a couple uh, markets up there that are you know just over the over the border that could connect. And um, it doesn't. It, it, it's nothing that we're opposed to. It's not anything that we're, you know, fueling up the jets and flying around and looking for somewhere to land. But we've had inquiries, and um, they do connect to some of our divisions, and they could be part of a master plan, and they could help, um, you know, create another, you know, piece of that DNA that helps us uh, with who we are. And that's that. Who we are is a, like I said, the North American Hockey League DNA. That it's a piece of DNA that isn't just one thing. It's a bunch of wonderful things, you know, brought together to create an opportunity for, for everybody involved to to to, to be part of something great. And um, but you know, in terms of Canadian expansion, we're not opposed to it. We're not we're not you know, like I said, fueling up the Jets looking for it. But um, it, it could be a part is in the future and, and if it works out that way it'll, it'll be done in carefully cautiously and and with respect to to the hockey ecosystem all the way around outstanding mark probably the uh, longest interview in the history of the pipeline show <laughs> uh, but uh, it was great stuff and uh education for me uh so that was terrific I, I really enjoyed the conversation i hope we can do it again well i love being part of history and and i and i appreciate you uh reaching out to us and i'm um, feel fortunate that we were able to be recognized and to be part of it. And I'll tell you, uh, the invitation's open. I'd love to talk to you again and, and go in depth on anything you want to. I appreciate it. That was Mark Frankenfeld, the uh, president and commissioner of the NAHL, the North American Hockey League, and uh, lots to digest in that interview. As I mentioned, uh, <laughs> that might be the longest single interview in the history of the Pipeline show. I might have to go back and uh, check that. Uh, but, uh, boy, lots of information there, and really appreciate that Mark was uh, able to give us that much time. One segment to go in Season 14, and we're going to preview the Holinka Gretzky Cup with Ross McLean, independent scout and longtime friend of the Pipeline Show. He's up next. Now near side white, far side Krebs, wrist shot, scores! Peyton Krebs, a wrist shot from the far side, and gets by Bailey Birkin. Hey, it's Peyton Krebs from the Kootenai Ice, and this is the Pipeline Show. Look at it down. Got 
You're listening to The Pipeline Show with Gee Flaming. We know each other. He's a friend from work. We're back on The Pipeline Show and uh, final segment of Season 14 as we get set for, well, one week of uh, summer vacation for me and then we're back with Season 15 the week after that. Uh, and my uh, last guest of Season 14, looks like he's going to be my first guest of Season 15 as well. Independent scout Ross McLean joins me once again as we get set for the Ivan Holinka tournament or the Holinka Gretzky Cup now. And uh, we're going to get a preview and then a uh, re- recap of the tournament when we come back. But uh, Ross mo- joins me now. Uh, Ross, welcome back to the Pipeline Show. How are you? I'm doing well. You're spoiled that you get a week of summer vacation. I haven't <laughs> heard those words in a few years now. Well, you do get to get, take a trip overseas, so there's a little bit of jealousy there for me. That That's true. The little work in I guess. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but the Holinka Gretzky Cup uh, last year in Edmonton was, uh, was I, th- I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, the attendance wasn't terrific, uh, but uh, I think that will grow as people get more familiar with the tournament. It's been well established uh, where you're going. Um, what are you expecting over there? Not Maybe not just for attendance, but is, do you think the exposure in North America at all kind of translates to what, the, will, what you'll see over there? Um, a little bit. I mean, this is really kind of the the real unofficial start to the season. I mean, it's kind of the beginning of the NHL scouting season for this kind of next draft. And obviously there's some advanced scouting that happens with some guys and some teams that have really put um, an onus on, on trying to get guys in there under 17 year and now get on the radar and track development. Uh, but this is really kind of the first event where all the scouting staffs are going to get together and really, so from the, from the operations side, from the hockey ops side, this is a, this is one of the bigger events of the year. So uh, the attendance is usually mostly all scouts um, <laughs> from years past. You know, when the Czech team's playing in Breklau, they usually do pretty well in terms of attendance. And um, probably one of the most interesting arenas. It reminds me of um, the old Nintendo ice hockey arena because it's got the kind of gray ice to it. Oh, yeah. But uh, they, they do a good job of supporting their team there. And they'll, you know, but the other games are usually, uh, you know, fairly... Fairly sparse for crowds, except for um, a very large contingency of, of scouts that are going to be there. All right. Well, let's look at the uh, rosters that we know of. And so far, I mean, the tournament, uh, as we're speaking, is, uh, what, about five days away? Starts on the 5th. Uh, and not all the rosters are uh, at least publicized just yet. But Canada's is. And uh, you were down in Calgary uh, for the camp. And so you saw everybody trying out. And I know you were tweeting about it uh, each and every day and all the practices and, and games, inter-squad games. Uh, I guess we could just start by asking, uh, are you happy with the, the final roster here for Canada and, and what stands out? Well, I have learned never, ever to uh, go against the roster that gets announced uh, for this for this event for Canada uh, as they perennially are the favorites and do very, very well on this, even if I believe that there's a couple of guys that they maybe should have taken or left off. But the other okay. side of it is, uh, you know, you can go to a camp and you can watch the camp for three days. Uh, but there's more information on these players that, that those coaches and, and, and scouts have. And that's really how a team should be picked if you want to have a chance at winning a, a tournament like this. Having a three-day camp gives opportunity for you know young players to come in and do very, very well, but they might not necessarily do that when they get over there. So uh, uh, having as much information as possible certainly does leave you with that feeling of surprise after some guys do very, very well at camp and are left off the roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same point, it is a process. It's a long process, and it's, it's important to keep that information in. So I try to temper my 
uh, reactions to the roster uh, every year when they come out. And, and uh, I understand the process that goes into it and the amount of work that they do to pick a team to, to compete over there. So with that being said, there were a couple of, of shocks uh, to me for guys that were left off the roster. Uh, probably most notably was Jacob Perot. Um, I was really high on him through the season, having tracked his development. Uh, and I thought he was one of the better forwards um, throughout the camp. Um and ultimately he did not make the team. So I think there was a lot of people that were surprised with that. But again, you're trying to build a team, and they may have felt that there were players that fit the role that he would have occupied and took some players for a role that they felt he couldn't occupy. So uh, always tough, always tough to, to see that decision. I'm trying to think back to last year. I think Alex Newhook was that guy last year, right, that was expected probably be in the mix and didn't end up making the team? We see that almost every year. You know, I remember a few years ago, there was the huge outcry about Sean Day not making the team. And, you know, so every single year, we there, there's always going to be that. There's always going to be, I mean, we're, we're very fortunate in our country that there is such great development that happens in so many areas and that we do have so many high-end players that come up. Uh, now, I've been pretty vocal about the fact that I think it could be better um, and that we are losing out to countries like Finland who have stronger uh, individual athletic development models but at the same point you know we're still producing some very very good players and it makes making a 23-man roster for a team uh, very very difficult at times and then you go to events where you have 20 on your roster it's even harder so there's always going to be some great competition there's always going to be those one or two guys that we're left kind of thinking wow I can't believe this guy didn't make it. All right, well, we're going to get to know a lot of these players over the course of this uh, this coming season as uh, most of them are in their draft year. I think the only guy who's uh, underage is uh, one of the two goaltenders in Tristan Lennox, plays for the Saginaw Spirit out of the Ontario Hockey League, and he, along with Dylan Guerin, are the uh, two goaltenders for Canada. Maybe let's start with the goaltending position. Is there a clear-cut starter here, or do you expect them to rotate goalies? I feel like Guerin has maybe earned himself as the lead horse in that race. Um, just very athletic, very consistent, uh, showed very, very well in the camp, was probably the most consistent goalie in the camp. Um, I think Lennox and Cranley really fought it out to the end, um, but I do believe that Lennox, is, Lennox has this ability when he's in a game to really take over and shows this great confidence where, as a coach, you can look out on the ice and know this is a guy that's going to make that save. Uh, very, very active with a stick, can control the puck very well. So he has another dynamic there as well, where you find yourself in, you know, on big ice with teams that are going to try and push pucks behind your D. He can come out and be that guy that launches plays. He's outstanding with the puck uh, and great poke checks in tight. Uh, makes it really hard for guys to drive the net. So again, in games where you feel like the competition is going to be trying to push pucks towards the net and trying to get more plays, scrambles, things like that, he has a real advantage. So it's going to be really interesting to see how uh, it plays out with these two guys. Um, certainly, I was left really impressed with Lennox um, after the last game. But Garen is just so consistent and does offer you that great athleticism in the net quickness and stability and so I think they're very very I think the strength is definitely the back end of this team uh the defense and, and the goaltending should be should be quite good and, and I would expect both goalies to play because there's a lot of hockey in a very very condensed schedule they, the teams play three and three have a day off and then you have the Friday uh semifinal and the and the, the final on Saturday which Canada traditionally is is almost guaranteed to be in uh, the way it seems to go. So I I, I think it's fair to expect uh, both goalies to see two or three games. 
Oh, absolutely. I think we've seen that with Canada every year at this event where they do that. Um, it's very rare, even for some of the other teams, uh, not to do it. Um, the only time that you sometimes don't see it is when the team does have that one standout goaltender and they're, and they're in a tight pool. But typically, you end up seeing um, at least one game from every goaltender, usually against the team that they, that they dub to be their, their least uh, competitive opponent uh, in, in, each, in each one. But I would imagine Canada splits and then makes a decision uh, based on, on, on the playoff round. All right, let's look at the blue line for Canada. Damon Hunt, uh, Donovan Serbango, uh, Jamie Drysdale, Jeremy Poirier, Caden Gooley of the PA Raiders, uh, Lucas Cormier, and uh, Ryan O'Rourke. Uh, what stands out to you about this group? How would you describe them overall as a, as a unit? They move very, very well. It's a very mobile group. Um, we saw that at the camp, almost every player that was there. Uh, just their ability to accelerate, shift weight, uh, shift on their edges is incredible. The amount of plays that were happening right at the blue line where two four checkers were coming at players and they were just spinning off and making plays was incredible. Uh, so there's some really great depth, um, offensive creativity, confidence with the puck and mobility um, that, that comes with this group. Um, certainly I think it's anchored by Jamie Drysdale, um, who to me is Duncan Keith 2.0, maybe even better. I think he'll be the best defenseman in this draft. Uh, just uber efficient. The way this, guy plays the game he doesn't make mistakes he can skate with everybody uh he's able to play in all three zones in any situation uh just very very intelligent uh and reliable defender who has some great offensive instinct and and, and ability to distribute the puck as well um next to him i think jeremy poirier was so impressive at camp Uh, i was really impressed with him at u17s last year uh and at camp he came in it was definitely the most noticeable defenseman out there while i think drysdale is that you know, can can just sort of filter into and come off the radar a little bit. Uh, and it's so efficient. Poirier is that he's going to jump out. He can do a little bit of everything. He's got a great stick. Uh, offensively, he's off the charts in terms of his ability to process information and, and, and make reads and reactions. And I think he's going to be a guy who's going to have a real sort of coming out party here at this event uh, and, and make a lot happen for Canada. Pretty average sized blue line. Uh, I think Caden Gooley at six two and a half is the only one that's above six one. Uh, everybody else is you know six foot or under. Uh, you mentioned Drysdale; he's under six foot, and Lucas Cormier under six foot. Uh, in fact, he's under five ten. Um, so not not the biggest uh, group in the world, but uh, doesn't seem to be an issue. No, and again, I think you know this this plays more to the international game. Um, you, you're not going to have the bang and crash style. Um, that you would see in North America, even even if you end up playing against the U.S., they're not going to be as much of a bang and crash team as you would expect. You know, when you would think of Canada and the U.S. competing at say the World Juniors or or, or even the Under 18 World Championships, this will be a more kind of free flowing event um, where guys are are really relying more on that transition skill uh, and creating offense quickly. So, uh, I think this blue line was built based around that decision making process. Guys that can make decisions quickly and, and play a transitional game. So that'll be really important um, in this tournament, which uh, especially when it's in, in the Czech Republic and Slovakia um, has traditionally been that way. Well, the uh, U.S. National Development Program dominated the first round of the, uh, the NHL draft a couple of months ago, but it's, uh, it's going to be a good draft for Canadians at the top end, and there's a few uh, that will be on this team uh, heading over to play in the Holinka Gretzky Cup as well. Uh, Ross McLean, independent scout, joins me here to uh, preview the tournament. 
who are some of those forwards for Canada that are on this team that are also going to be high picks to come uh, June of 2020? Well, the big name right now is Quentin Byfield, and this guy has some really outstanding appeal to the way he can play the game. Um, there are times where he has reminded me of Evgeny Malkin in, in the way that he plays. He's a big body. Uh, he's very strong. He's got this great creativity, especially in tight to his body. He makes a lot of plays through his legs, likes to pull opposition players to him and then make plays spinning off them or powering away from them. Um, it's incredible, actually. If you think about Evgeny Malkin and you and you watch him play, uh, there really is a lot of uh, uh, comparable skills that are there. Now, he needs to get a little bit more consistent and and use that power, use that size, use his intensity a little bit more to, to do that. But he's, he's going to be a guy that's going to have a ton of eyes on him in this event and all year long because he's very much looking like he could be uh, anywhere from three to five in this draft and possibly even number two um, if he can really put it together. And there's a few other guys that we expect to be uh, pretty high picks. Cole Perfetti, uh, the Saginaw Spirit, would be another one of those guys, right? Absolutely. Well, the thing with Perfetti is Perfetti just kind of, kind of fits in until he doesn't. He's just the guy that you don't always necessarily notice, and then you look at the score sheet, and all of a sudden he's had four points. Uh, but he does also have that ability when he has the puck and wants to dominate. He can really dominate. He doesn't look like the type of player that it would be difficult to take the puck from, but he's probably the hardest player to get the puck from in this draft class. Uh, his creativity, uh, when he gets into situations where it looks like there's there's no outcome that's going to work out in his favor, he comes up with something. It's It's pretty amazing to watch. Uh, his playmaking ability is exceptional. His ability to get pucks to the net uh, is extremely strong. Uh, and he creates so much off the rush and from the perimeter, uh, which are really difficult areas to try and produce offense from. So uh, his appeal is very, very strong just because of his unique ability to create from almost nothing consistently. Good group of WHL guys uh, up front on this team as well. Justin Sordiff uh, is, uh, I think, the top rookie in the WHL last year, if I remember correctly. And Connor McLennan now in Winnipeg with the uh, the relocated Kootenai Ice. Uh, obviously, Jake Neighbors, who we know well in uh, this neck of the woods, playing for the Edmonton Oil Kings. Ozzie Weisblatt we saw going all the way to the Memorial Cup with the, the PA Raiders. There's a, a pretty good contingent of WHLers. What sort of an impact will they make on this team? Well, I think Sordiff and McLennan will be two of the guys that have a pretty strong impact on this team. Uh, Sordiff is just such a explosive playmaker, uh, great edge control, can bring the puck to the middle lanes really, really well and pushes pucks to the net. He seems to be a step ahead uh, and catches guys off guard quite often, uh, making plays that you just don't expect him to make. Um, McLennan is that pure shooter. Uh, I think we saw that at the camp that he was really trying to showcase the fact that, hey, you know, he's he's the guy you want shooting the puck. Uh, and he's going to be a guy, I think, that finds himself in a lot of sort of off-shot situations on power plays, down low, and it's going to be someone that they're trying to get the puck to so that he can unleash it up towards the net, uh, especially with a few of the players that are on this roster that have um, some good net presence to them. So uh, I think those two will have a real good impact. I think Wiesblatt's going to be one of their energy guys who goes out there and is in the trusted situations um, battling for... Uh, um, possession and you know trying to win that momentum as much as possible and i think jake neighbors is going to be their mr everything i think he's going to be the guy that they rely on in all situations that can play um in whatever situation that's required um in, to make an impact in the game and to uh to really be in those crucial situations yeah he's the swiss army knife guy you can put him 
Absolutely. Any three positions up front, and you can be a power play or penalty kill guy. Uh, yeah, really uh, versatile. Uh, Seth Jarvis is the guy you were tweeting about uh, at points during the week. You really like his speed uh, forward with the Portland Winterhawks. His speed's incredible. Uh, during the five-on-five play, he, he got kind of lost in the mix a little bit here or there. Uh, but when they broke it down into three-on-three and four-on-four, this guy was unbelievable. And it was just that little extra ice that was out there. He stood out beyond everybody. Nobody could catch him. He had the puck the whole time. He was making plays on his own. He was setting up other players. It was really, really it was special. It was really fun to watch. So this is the type of guy that if they find themselves in those situations where they end up in a three-on-three, um, he's definitely going to be the guy they rely on. All right, anybody else from the Canadian roster in particular that we haven't uh, already touched on that I think deserve recognition right now? Uh, I think one guy for sure is uh, Hendricks LaPierre. Okay. Um, this is a guy whose development, obviously a highly touted player, but his development uh, has been has been very strong through the course of the year. Uh, excellent hands, very good uh, instincts in the offensive zone. In one-on-one situations, he can win uh, lanes to the inside, to the outside. He can drive the net. He can play and make. Uh, this is a guy that's really starting to put it all together and is going to start turning some heads soon, I believe. All right, uh, Ross, let's look at some of the other teams. And, again, not all the rosters are publicized yet, but we have seen uh, the ones for Finland and the U.S., uh, and I think you have the roster for the Czech Republic, uh, I believe. Um, let's look at the Americans, though, and uh, are there three or four names that uh, immediately come to the top of the list uh, for guys that you have uh, kind of highlighted on your sheet that you want to watch? Well, I know for the U.S., probably the two guys that are going to be the engine that make this team go are probably going to be Cross Hannis playing with out of Portland Winter Hawks and, and Jack Williams, who's been playing in the USHL. Uh, these are going to be probably their offensive focal points, the guys that try and create as much as possible, both some good speed. Uh, Hannis has some decent size to him and, and can create possession on the walls. Um, Williams is more of the get the puck to the middle uh, and, and make things happen from there. But good speed, uh, quick thinker. Um, but th- those are going to be the two guys on on a U.S. team um, that is mostly built up of players that are off their national development team uh, radar and playing in high school mm-hmm. and a few of the uh, you know, Canadian major junior players. So the American team is always really interesting to watch. There's always two or three guys that kind of come out of nowhere that you didn't really know anything about. I know uh, Mike Coster was one of those guys for me last year. Right. Uh, and I think, I think we'll see that again this year. There's a couple of names uh, on here that I'm really interested to see sort of what they can what they can bring. Um, Alex Gagne, a defenseman out of New Hampshire, um, being one of them. Um, Wyatt Kaiser, uh, another defenseman um, who plays uh, high school in in Minnesota. These are some some names that are looking like they're going to be fascinating to see how they. Um, adapt and evolve with this level of competition. Well, and I know I, I put the question out to the audience about who's going to lead each team in scoring at the Holenka Gretzky Cup, and I, and I had a, f- a few people mention the name Blake Biondi to me, uh, and which was interesting because he's recently been listed by the Edmonton Oil Kings. I know he's going back to high school this year and scheduled to join the University of Minnesota Duluth, which is a really good program, right near Hermantown, uh, which is where he's playing high school. So maybe it's... Uh, Wishful thinking to see if he comes up, but I don't know what you know about Blake Biondi, but uh, he put up good numbers last year at the high school level too. Well, I left him off that list of guys that I was talking about because I knew you'd want to. I knew you'd want to circle him out <laughs> uh, in particular. But yeah, he is absolutely probably the leader of that group of players that really have an opportunity to put themselves on the radar in this. Uh, 
again, he's he's another guy that playing out of that high school league in the U.S., which is a in the, in Minnesota is an unbelievably good year and produces prospects every single year. Um, he's he's kind of the biggest name out of it so far this year. So uh, there's going to be a lot of people that have his name highlighted and are looking to see what he can do. Um, so the jury's still kind of out on it, and he'll be probably one of the guys that first segment of next year we're talking about a ton. Uh, I don't know if you know either of the two goaltenders, but big difference in in uh, size. Loudon Hogue is five uh, eleven, and Colin Purcell six foot six already. Seventeen years old, six foot six. Yeah, pretty impressive. Um, obviously, there's two schools of thought there, um, and and you see it at almost every level uh, where there are large goaltenders who typically haven't quite developed um, as yet, but are starting to starting to get to those levels, but uh, certainly size creates confidence with some coaches in terms of goaltending, uh, and then there's that raw ability, puck tracking, and just that goalie that stops the puck, typically, where you, you, you're willing to throw size at the window, so uh, I'm not sure which one of these two guys is going to uh, see the most action. Um, both are kind of question marks coming into this event, um, but certainly Purcell will be the one that uh, most guys will look at and say, okay, let's see if this guy's got anything or uh, has some long-term potential. All right, let's look at uh, some of the European squads. Finland's uh, roster has been announced. Uh, I think the uh, top Finn for the draft this year is Anton Lundell, but he's uh, an 01, a late 01, so he won't be playing at the Flinka Gretzky Cup this year. Who else is on that roster catches your attention? Well, probably a couple of the bigger names. Atu Rati is going to be um, probably one of their their go-to players. Now, he's a late 02, so he's not going to be eligible for this draft. He'll be the one after. Uh, but he was very good at under-18s as well. Uh, he's got good size, really slick puck control mechanics, shifty on his edges, has some really good lateral cut explosiveness. Uh, he's very creative. So the type of guy that, that, that can make some stuff happen. Um, Oliver Suni is another name, um, who is more of a complimentary player, uh, very, very good net presence, uh, has some decent size to him already. Um, and it's definitely going to be one of those players that is going to create quite a bit. Uh, for, for the Finnish team. Um, on the back end, um, Emil Vero uh, is a player that I really liked at U17s last year. Uh, very shifty with the puck, uses really good quick cuts, um, finds creates passing lanes really well for himself at the point, uh, has great acceleration. So he's probably going to be one of the guys that is um, the catalyst from the back end for this team. And then I think probably the big name on this team that uh, a lot of people are, are really interested in is, is Casper Pudio. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he is just sort of your very good all-around uh, player. Uh, he's not a big guy, but he finishes his checks. He's really difficult to play against. He's got great anticipation, um, highly instinctual player. Um, and he's just the type of guy that does the little things that help teams win and makes them really, really difficult to play against. He's the first overall pick in the CHL import draft uh, this past year, and uh, we'll be playing with the Swift Current Broncos this coming season. So we'll get to see a lot of him in the WHL. And the other WHLer on the Finnish team is another Oil King, and yes, he's Seppala. Not a big player. Do you have uh, any thoughts about him? I know he played for the U17 squad last year, but I don't know if he uh, if you have notes on him or not. I do. Uh, he is, again, he's one of those uh, all-around players, uh, can play in kind of every situation, probably better on the defensive side, more of an energy guy. Um, he's a real good shot blocker, uh, very, very good in his own end uh, at, at winning pucks. So this is the kind of guy that goes in and, and, and wedges and tries to separate players uh, and, and begins plays for his team. Um, 
which is interesting because again, he's he's not a big guy, but uh, he does have some pretty good quickness, uh, and he's willing to kind of do a little bit of everything. So uh, certainly somebody that you really like having on your team, and you don't like getting out there to have to play against because he's going to be pesky, he's going to be tenacious, and and you're you're, all, you're not always going to have fun when he's out on the ice. Ross McLean, a scout, is my guest here, final guest of uh, Season 14 of the Pipeline Show. When I think of the Swedes, uh, it's going to be another good year for Sweden at the draft. Uh, Lucas Raymond and Alexander Holtz will be uh, two very high picks coming out of Sweden. Neither one of them are going to be at the Hlinka Gretzky Cup because they're busy playing with the U-20s uh, in Plymouth, Michigan right now. Uh, but Zion Nybeck is the guy you pointed out to, to me off the air that uh, is going to be one to watch for at the Hlinka Gretzky Cup. Yeah, he's kind of he's been the he's been the third musketeer there with those two guys um, throughout the last couple of years. So we saw him at the under 18s as well. Uh, he was uh, on that roster as an underage player with those two guys, and they were they were the three they were the three big wheels for that team as underagers. So um, again, a bit of a smaller player, uh, very quick, great in the faceoff dot, uh, excellent offensive timing. Uh, very, very strong playmaker, can take the puck to the net for his size, which is really impressive. Uh, so he's he's definitely going to be uh, the catalyst for this Swedish team, without question. Now, I haven't seen the official list for the Czechs yet. Uh, you may have, but uh, I know there are a couple of players that you believe will be on the tournament, on the team and at the tournament, guys to watch for. Yeah, I think the big name from the Czechs this year is going to be Jan Mythic. Um, this is a guy that has some flashes of really unbelievable speed, great one-on-one ability, uh, highly intense in the middle lanes around the puck. He's got great hand-eye coordination, uh, is a real, real good offensive player. And this is a guy that I've seen people talk that he could potentially even be in the top five conversation for this year's draft. So there'll be a lot of people with eyes on him uh, coming in. Um, I know that there are a couple other players that uh, just having seen on Twitter uh, teams have said congratulations to this guy for going going over, but I, without All having right. seen the, the official list, there are some players um, like everybody's favorite named Ivan Ivan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw that, and I, this is a guy that impressed that at U17s um, was a real good um, offensive player with pretty good linear speed, falls up place to the net well, has some good good stick skills. Uh, the big guy that I think looking to see whether or not there's the goaltender uh, Nick Malik who was the goaltender for this team uh, in the event last year as well as an underage player and and that's the son of uh, Merrick Malik right. uh, and so obviously he's got some pretty good size um, highly athletic and last year he was he was their most important player and I would assume that if, if he's there again he will once again uh, be that guy and outside of that the, the only other name um, that I've seen so far that we could expect to probably be there is uh, Jan Sikarth. And uh, he had a very good U17 as well. He's highly engaged, really good work ethic, 200-foot uh, player uh, who, who seems to like the contact element of the games uh, and has some really good size to him. So uh, it's going to be an interesting team. Um, again, the Czechs do a good job in Breklov of supporting the team when they play, and that does make a difference for them when they're there. They are usually quite energetic. They've They've made the final of that tournament a couple times while it's over there. Uh, so this could be a team that could shock some people. All right. Well, we haven't seen the rosters for like Switzerland or Russia yet, uh, but there'll be some notable players uh, expected, at least from countries like that. Slovakia as well, we haven't seen the roster for. But uh, anybody that uh, you're expecting to be there that we haven't touched on, we just don't know 100% that they're confirmed. 
Well, Russia is going to be the interesting one. There's a ton of names on that Russian team. Um, they could potentially be the favorite to win this tournament, depending on, on who's coming. Um, now, all of that starts with in the net with Yaroslav Askarov, who to me is the best goaltending prospect in years and years and years, and that includes Spencer Knight from this year. Uh, this guy has been playing on the international level for a few years now and has been really standing out. Um, he was arguably the top goaltender in last year's event, uh, was definitely the best goaltender at U-17s this year. Uh, World Junior A, he's played at and been the top goalie. So this is a guy that every time he shows up, he's a, he's a difference maker. He's an impact. Um, and so if he's there, that gives the Russians a huge advantage uh, right off the hop. But certainly they've got names like Daniel Gushin, uh, who is a highly creative offensive player, has led tournaments in scoring before, um, has competed in the World Junior A Challenge against older players and been one of the top scorers there as well. So uh, there's definitely some potential for them to field uh, some players uh, that that uh, can make a real difference. Uh, they've also got a couple of underage players. They have a very, very strong 2003-born uh, defender uh, named Artin Grushnikov, uh, who uh, is could potentially be one of the top defensemen there. Reminds me, he plays the game very similar to uh, Jamie Drysdale, but is maybe a little bit more aggressive in terms of his offensive creation ability. So uh, there is some real, real potential for this Russian team to field something special all right we'll watch for that for sure and real in-depth uh, look at the upcoming link gretzky cup uh, ross as always really appreciate your time guess we'll talk to you in about two weeks yeah my pleasure looking forward to it team canada with a 4-1 victory over uh, slovakia just a couple of days before the start of the tournament and, uh, of course, Canada will go into this uh, Helenka Gretzky Cup again as the favorite, as they are every year going into the Helenka Gretzky Cup. It's the one tournament all year where uh, Canada is able to send their absolute best. There's nobody busy doing anything else unless there's an injury or something like that. Uh, Canada looking very, very strong. Thanks for Ross McLean for uh, that preview. And as I mentioned at the end there, he's going to join us. For, he'll be the first guest of uh, Season 15 as well to recap the Holinka Gretzky Cup, as he's headed over to uh, watch the games uh, and take those in firsthand. And with that, that is the end of not just this episode, but of Season 14 of the Pipeline Show. Lots of thanks uh, to give uh, to all the uh, team media contact or communications of people that help set up interviews over the course of a very long season. Uh, couldn't do it without the help of those people. Obviously, thanks to all the players and uh, scouts and GMs and coaches that and media people that uh, come on the show as guests. Obviously, it would be a pretty lonely show if uh, not for guests uh, coming on the program. Huge thank you to everyone who has signed up to be a patron at patreon.com slash the pipeline show. The show would not exist without uh, people who are stopping by there and uh, pledging their support to keep the show going. I really, really appreciate that. And I encourage others to uh, check it out and see if it's a, a fit for you. A couple of bucks a month is all it takes. You get early access. So most of these interviews that you're hearing on this week's episode, they've been up on the Patreon page uh, for three or four days now. Those folks are uh, able to enjoy some early access uh, to the interview segments of the show. Last week I told you that I'd be able to tell you what uh, the plans are for the uh, first uh, six weeks of Season 15. Traditionally, what I do is the in-depth WHL team-by-team -team previews. You get the play-by-play -play guy on from each team and a preview of the upcoming season from uh, their perspective for their respective club. 
This year, changing it up, it's going to be either the head coach or the GM. In some cases, that's the same person. But we're going to do all 22 teams leading up to the start of the WHL season. I already have a number of those teams booked. And I can tell you the first week when we come back, and it wasn't because it's the team in my backyard and I'm on the broadcast team, uh, but the Edmonton Oil Kings were the first team to actually book. So the Oil Kings, the Calgary Hitmen, the Everett Silvertips are already guaranteed and locked in to be the first WHL teams that will be previewed in Season 15. So you'll hear from Kurt Hill, Jeff Chenoweth, and Gary Davidson, the respective GMs of those three clubs. As they mentioned, Ross McLean, uh, independent scout, will be the first guest of Season 15. No show next week. Take one week off and come back with a brand new season of the Pipeline Show. Until then, everybody, get out and enjoy some summer. We'll talk hockey soon enough. My name's Keith Flaming. Cheers.